Merry Christmas and welcome to the Tragedy of Cinema's It's a Wonderful Podcast Life. Hi, some of you may know me. I'm Jimbo, the host of the Tragedy of Cinema podcast. And about a year ago, I came up with an idea about maybe there's some people around the world that's maybe going through a hard time at Christmas time and maybe didn't have any family or friends uh, to spend the holiday with. So I got a hold of a couple of my podcast buddies and said, hey, why don't we put together this mega show for people that may not have anybody at Christmas time just to give them something to do. So I opened the invitation to anybody that wanted to be a part of it um, to come on in and, and put one of their shows together. I told them I didn't care how long it was. I didn't care how short it was. Uh, they can do whatever they want. So before we get started with the main show, I would like to say a special thanks to um, my friend Tim Mullins. Um, he's the one that edits and puts this all together for me. Uh, so Tim, I want to give a big old thank you to you. Um, if you'd go follow him on HHH Media, he's got some wonderful audio dramas getting ready to come out. Um, which you'll hear one here in a little bit, I'm sure. And also a very, very special thank you to Jerry and Tracy Pauly from Hillbilly Horror Stories. Without them, my podcast wouldn't exist, The Tragedy of Cinnamon, and I'm sure a couple of these other ones you're going to hear. Um, we're all born from Jerry and Tracy's uh, baby, The Hillbilly Horror Stories, so please go listen, download, subscribe, and leave them a review. They're wonderful people, two of the best people I've ever met. So, with that being said... I think it's time to turn this over to, I'm hoping it's Santa Claus this year, maybe it's Frosty, and just hopefully it's not Krampus. So sit back, grab a cup of eggnog, light up the old Yule Tide log, and sit back, enjoy, and let us entertain you for the next, who knows, several hours. Thanks, and Merry Christmas. Just as a disclaimer, we want you to know that some of the movies that we will be reviewing were shot in a different time and era where people of race and sex were not treated equally. We understand this and hope you do too. The movies or anything that happened on the sets are not the views of this podcast or what this show is intended to be all about. Exactly. And we want to give due diligence in presenting the movie and not the views of the cast or directors or anyone involved. But we also feel it's necessary to let the audience know some of the background information to get a feel for what was happening at the time of shooting the film. Again, we hope you understand that we do not agree with everything that went on, and we just want to give out the information. And with that being said, hope you enjoy the show. one and all and wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year! It's Christmas Eve in L.A. But a team of terrorists... You want money? What kind of terrorists are you? Who said we were terrorists? ...have their own holiday plans. And I'm telling you, you just got to kill me. Okay. We do it the hard way. But the one thing they didn't plan on was New York cop John McLean. Got invited to the Christmas party by mistake. Who knew? You really think you have a chance against us, Mr. Cowboy? Yippee-ki-yay, mother... 
And you'll have it. They have already killed one hostage. This channel is reserved for emergency calls only. Lady, do I sound like I'm ordering a pizza? Come to Papa, honey. Only if New Jersey counts. What does he think he's doing? Good job. Using artillery on us. The idiot is the police. It's him. <laughs> he's an easy guy to like. Welcome to the party, pal. And a hard man to kill. Bruce Willis. Die Hard. All right, everybody, welcome to the It's a Wonderful Podcast Life Christmas Show. This is our second year of doing this show. And those of you that have listened to the podcast for a long time know that deep down we have been talking about Die Hard for probably the entire run of this podcast and how it is or is not a Christmas show. So sit back. Pull up a chair, light the old Yuletide, mm-hmm. and sit back as we dive into Die Hard and why it is, or why it is not, a Christmas movie. I'm your host, Jimbo, and joined once again by my good friend and colleague, Kyle, the Holly and Jolly Man. <laughs> Have a Holly Jolly Christmas. <laughs> so, Kyle, I'm not going to throw any... Um, questions or anything out there to you let's just go ahead and jump into Die Hard because we have a lot to say there is a whole lot of Die Hard in Die Hard as it turns out that's very you know, good words for me all right so Die Hard released on July 20th 1988 directed by John McTiernan writers include Roger Thorpe based on a novel which is also titled Nothing Lasts Forever then we have Jeb Stewart, Jeb Stewart for the screenplay and Stephen E. D. Soze for the screenplay Producers include Lawrence Gordon and Joel Silver, and composers Michael Kamen. For the budget, we have $28 million in production, uh, the equivalent of $65 million today. For its opening weekend, it only made $600,851, which is the equivalent of $1.4 million today. Gross for the U.S. and Canada include uh, made a total of $83,844,093. It's incredibly accurate numbers. I'm surprised we got those. Um, that'd be equivalent to basically $194.4 million today. And gross worldwide, it came out with a glowing $141,603,197, folks. Which is the equivalent of about $328 million today. Ooh, technical specs here. We got... Shuffling papers. We have a runtime of 132 minutes, just over two hours. Sound mix is a 70 millimeter six track and a Dolby stereo for four channels. Next up for color info, this is a colored film. Aspect ratio, we have a 2.2 by 1 ratio uh, for the 70 millimeter prints and a 2.39 ratio by 1 um, for the theatrical prints. Uh, for the, um, I believe the DVD prints actually. For the camera, we use a Panavision Panaflex Gold with a burp. Oh, doubled up. Stop drinking soda while doing the podcast, folks. And we have the Panavision C in E series in the Ultra Speed Golden and Cookie. Uh, no, Cook. Cookie. <laughs> cook. The Cookie camera, everybody. And the milk. <laughs> and the milk. It's like I said, cookies and milk for Santa, everybody. And we have the Cook uh, Veritol Lens. <laughs> 
Film length, it's seven reels in length. They're approximately 3,586 millimeters for uh, film length. And let's see here. Moving on to the very glowing rewards. And that's a great gem roll from me. Uh, we have the 2019 Online and Film and Television Association Awards. and got the Hall of Fame Award. Then we have the National Film Preservation Board in the USA in 2017. It got the National Film Registry Award. For DVD exclusive rewards in 2001, we have the nominated for Video Premiere Award and Best Overall Extra Features and Library Title. And that was awarded to David Pryor. And then for 1990, we have for 1990, we have the awards for the Japanese Academy. It won the award for Best Foreign Language Film. Then we have the 1990 Blue Ribbon Awards. We have Best Foreign Language Film won for John McTiernan. Then we have the 1990 um, Cinema Junpo Awards for Best Foreign Language Film, also awarded to John McTiernan. Then for 1989, we have the Academy Awards. It was nominated for the Oscar for Best Sound. Nominated for the Oscar of Best Effects and Sound Effects Editing. And also Best Film Editing. And nominated for the Best Effects and Visual Effects. Lots of nominations, um, no wins there. For 1989, we have the BMI Film and T TV Awards. It won the Film for Film Music Award. 1989, we have the Edgar Allan Poe Awards. It was nominated for Best Motion Picture. Then for 1989, we have the Ho Chi Film Awards. It was not. It was. It won the Best Foreign Language Film Award for 1989. And for the Motion Picture Sound Editors USA Awards, it won the Golden Reel Award. Moving on, we have the cast. My last time, my, my debut part, if you will. We have Bruce Willis playing NYPD Officer John McClane. Bruce Willis hardly needs an introduction, of course, he's a legendary actor's own right. Um, known for films such as Pulp Fiction, The Fifth Element, The Sixth Sense, Unbreakable, The Whole Nine Yards, Armageddon, and many, many more. Bruce Willis, guys. What's your Bruce Willis movie, Jimbo? Uh... Is it Dyer? No. The Christmas movie? No. Probably Six Cents. Six Cents? Six Cents? Mm. Or Fifth Element was really, really good. Fifth, Fifth Element probably, is probably, probably my, my favorite. Personally. Yeah. Then, of course, we have Alan Rickman playing Han Gruber. Um, he, of course, best known for playing Snape in Harry Potter. Um, Who? Who's also Snape in Harry Potter. Never <laughs> seen him. Yeah. The, 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 <laughs> the, you, know, you know him. He was the teacher of the, was it Dark oh, Arts? Oh, you, you mean the kids' version of Lord of the Rings? The kids' version of Lord of the Rings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um... <laughs> Uh, okay. And then, of course, he was also in uh, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, and the legendary movies on right, and Galaxy Quest, which is probably like the most underrated movie of that year. <laughs> but Galaxy that Quest was a is funny a, movie, too. Galaxy Quest is an amazing film. I love that. Um, next up, we have Rog Reginald Nell Johnson playing Sergeant Al Powell. Um, Uncle Carl. Uncle Carl. That's <laughs> right. Family Matters. <laughs> Yeah, Carl Winslow in Family Matters. Yeah, yeah. And Turner Hooch, and he's also in the Crocodile Dun movie, Dundee movie. Then we have a Bonnie Beldia, um, Beldia playing Holly McLean, John McLean's estranged wife. Um, she was in movies such as Heart Like a Wheel, Presumed Innocent, The Outer Limits, and Shadow of a Doubt. Next up, we have Paul Gleason playing Dwayne Robertson. Dwayne. Um, he was in movies such as The Breakfast Club. Um, gosh, who was in The Breakfast Club? I can't remember now. Um, no, can't, not going to be well, right. Who was all in there? Uh, yeah, the guy who plays Dwayne in this movie. I forgot he was what he played. He was the principal, was he the principal? I think so. Was? Okay. That's right, he was, wasn't he? Yeah, I, 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 for some reason I thought he was an older guy. Um, trading, uh, he was also in Trading Places and um, the 2001 film Not Another Teen Movie. Where I believe he played the principal in that one too. That's why. I, okay, now I remember the connection. Um, 
Going forward, we have Dvorak White playing um, Argyle. He was in movies such as Places in the Heat, Places in the Heart, The Blues Brothers, the 1992 film Trespass, and he was also in the Heat of the Night TV series, which is a film we covered early this year. Uh, well, the film we covered earlier this year also has a TV series called um, In the Heat of the Night, same, same name. Next up, we have William Atherton playing Thornburg. Um, he was in films such as Ghostbusters. Um, he was the uh, the environmental committee guy. I forget his name. Uh, it was Peck, I believe it was. Yeah, Mr. Peck. <laughs> then we had, he was also in the films such as uh, Real Genius, The Day of the Locust, and Mad City. Then we have a then we have Hart Bachner playing Ellis. Um, he was in uh, the animated film Batman: Mask of Phantasm, and the nineteen eighty four nineteen eighty four film Supergirl. The 1997-1979 film Breaking Away. Then we have James Shigeta, Shigeta playing Takagi. Um, he's uh, a listening actor. He's on right. Um, you know, many many older films. He played a lot of the kind of like uh, Japanese antagonists, basically a lot of like a Japanese bad guy, kind of a no name to some degree. But um, been a lot of films. He was such films as the 1954 film Midway, um, the Crimson the Crimson Camino, and Flower Drum Song. And lastly, we have Alexander Gundanov playing Carl. He was in the 1985 film Witness, the 1986 film The Money Pet, and the 1995 film The Zone. And that is the cast for Die Hard. Whew. Take a breath, Kyle. Take All right. Breath. It's always an mouthful at the very beginning. All right. So we're going to talk a little bit about this movie before we dive into is it or is it not a Christmas movie. So, Kyle, some fun facts about the movie Die Hard. The right. fictional... Nakatomi Plaza is the headquarters of 20th Century Fox. The company charged itself rent for the use of the then unfinished building. So I guess all those scenes in there that has the construction stuff and everything was actually because, hey, all legit, it's yeah. not done. <laughs> uh, the costume department had 17 undershirts in various stages of degradation on hand for Bruce Willis to wear. Uh, Bruce Willis received a then unheard of 500, or sorry, 5 million uh, fee which was approved by the Fox president, Rupert Murdoch. Uh, this is obviously before he became a really, really big actor. So Yeah, so it was incredible to see him make that much money for this film. Right. Which no one knew if it would be successful or not. Uh, the scene where Bruce Willis and Alan Rigman meet up was unrehearsed to create a greater feeling of spontaneously between the two actors. That's when he went into his American accent, so they didn't know what was going to happen. You know what I mean? I thought yeah. that was pretty cool. Uh, Hart Bogner's line, Hans, Bubby, was ad-libbed. Alan Rickman's quizzical reaction was genuine. <laughs> uh, can you imagine just being, just waiting for somebody to come in and say something? He just walks in and says that. I'd, be, Hans, I'd, probably, my bro. I'd yeah. probably just bust up laughing. My main man. Uh, like, yeah. What in the world stands problem? <laughs> uh, the scene where McLean falls down the uh, elevator shaft, or the shaft was a mistake by the stuntman, who was supposed to grab the first vent. As it was originally planned, he slipped and continued to fall, but the shot was used anyway. It was edited together where no one, uh, with one where uh, McLean grabs the next one down as he falls. So, whoops. <laughs> yeah. And then it was, probably, it was like, oh no. It was like, probably a much harder stuff to perform that way, too. Exactly, yeah. Agreed. Um, in 2007, Bruce Willis donated John McClane's undershirt to the Smithsonian Museum. So, if anybody wants to go check out the sweaty undershirt of John McClane. All right, who wouldn't, right? Get to see a sweaty undershirt in the museum. <laughs> Just like, oh. what's she in the museum, Carl? Like, I want to go see a sweaty undershirt. <laughs> wow, I'm amazed. I even paid the VIP where I could smell it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, only a couple of the actors who played the German terrorists were actually German, and only a couple more could speak broken German. The actors were cast for their menacing appearances rather than nationality. Nine of the 12 were over six foot tall. 
Oh, wow. That yeah. makes sense. Yeah. Uh, much of the script was improvised due to the constant screenplay tweaks that were being made during the filming. And, you know, that's got to be hard when they keep changing the screenplay as you're filming. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I think that would just be very hard as an actor to stay in character and do stuff. Just walk in, not know what you're doing today. Right. That'd be a lot of anxiety for me. <laughs> uh, when John McClane runs through the glass shards in his bare feet, after Hans and his men have shot out the glass board, uh, partitions in the computer room, Bruce Willis is wearing special rubber shoes designed to look like his own bare feet. One can see this if looking closely at his feet uh, appear quite unnaturally large in some of these crucial barefoot scenes. He's got those Frodo feet. In the yeah, hobbit feet. That's what I was <laughs> thinking. <laughs> in the making of feature, director John McTierian uh, revealed that a majority of the exterior shots of the building showed, uh, showing explosions were real full-scale explosions set off in and around the actual building. Um, ironically, Bruce Willis sneered uh, at for being an all-American hero by the head German terrorist is actually more German than most of the villains in this movie. <laughs> Alan Rickman was English, and Alexander Gudinov was Russian. Bruce Willis was born on March 19, 1955, in West Germany to an American father and a German mother. So He was the most German of all the area. Bruce Willis' exhaustion from his schedule, because he was also shooting Moonlighting at this time. Kyle, if you remember Moonlighting, it was a TV show I, in 1985. Yes, I remember that show. That was his first big role, actually. It's probably like 20 years before you were I, born, I, I, right? Oh, uh, oh. Uh, 85. Probably, yeah. No, I was I was born in 93. <laughs> Man, I feel old. Uh, for Stephen E. Sousa to beef up the roles of other characters, giving characters like uh, Al Powell, Ellis Argyle, and Richard Thornburg uh, more personality and screen time. Mm-hmm. Um, on Alan Rickman's first day of shooting, he filmed the scene where Hans Gruber first runs in, uh, into John McClane. He made a jump off of a ledge of about three foot high, injuring himself when he landed and damaged some cartilage in his knee. He was told by his doctor not to put any weight on that leg, and he had to use crutches for a week. For the rest of the scene, when Hans Gruber is standing and talking to John McClane, Alan Rickman is standing on one leg for the entire time and has a leg brace on under his pants. <laughs> it's always funny. Just like, it's such a simple thing. Like, just fall from this three-foot high and you mess it up. Crumble. And then next, the next few weeks, you're just suffering from it. Uh, it sucks being even a little bit older. Right. <laughs> Uh, Bruce Willis has said that this is his favorite role as playing John Mc- McClane. Um, Alan Rickman That's nearly did it five more times. Yeah, <laughs> Alan Rickman nearly passed up the role of Hans Gruber, which ended up being his first film role. He had only arrived in Hollywood two days earlier and was appalled by the idea of his first role being the villain in an action film. To a degree, Rickman was right to be concerned considering his performance as Hans Gruber was so held that the actor had to struggle being typecast as a player of villains for much of his career. Sheriff of Nottingham, mm-hmm. uh, Snape. Though Snape, I've heard, is not really a bad guy. It just depends on how you look at him. Maybe well, just, yeah. Maybe just misunderstood. I look at him as a, as a, as a terrible person. But mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I have thoughts on Harry Potter. We'll get on those someday. <laughs> uh, contrary to popular belief, that is actually Bruce uh, Willis riding on the top of the elevator. You remember when he goes away? Yeah, really impressive. Good thing it stopped. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, while making this film, cinematographer Jan Bond got trapped in a lift. This later gave him inspiration for the opening scene of Speed in 1994, which he directed. It's another great movie. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Keanu Reeves and uh, uh, Sandra Bullock. Sandra Bullock. Uh, the fireball in the elevator shaft was shot with real pyrotechnics using a miniature shaft. The camera speed had to vary over the length of the shot because otherwise the fireball would appear to change speed as it moved up uh, the forced perspective model. The effects people weren't sure exactly at what rate uh, to vary the speed, so they rigged a manual variable speed control and did several takes changing the speed at different rates and then picked the one that looked the best. So, yeah, so good trial and error. Just, yeah, just, like, just got to get it close as possible when that's good enough. 
Bruce and looks great. Bruce Willis says he still gets squeamish when he starts uh, sees the, his character pulling out the shards of glass from his feet. Don't blame him. That looks awful. <laughs> <laughs> uh, another scene that was improvised uh, was when McLean meets Hans for the first time. Rickman does his best American accent uh, here to try and fool our hero. The filmmakers have been trying to figure out a way for McLean and Hans to meet face to face before the film's climatic scene. So he did a really good job. Um, after John put the chain around Carl's neck and sent him crashing into the wall, he sits down with his back against a pillar. Over his left shoulder, you can see the actor that plays Carl watching. <laughs> uh, 20th Century Fox, the production company uh, behind the Die Hard franchise, formally admitted that Die Hard was a Christmas movie and stating that it is the greatest Christmas story ever told. Uh, in a new trailer <laughs> besides you know like the birth of Christ the birth of Christ exactly uh, the 30th anniversary of the film is lessening the debate for years until your man the main star John McClane said Die Hard is not a Christmas movie so they keep this up themselves by saying it is a Christmas it is a Christmas movie well we'll get there folks hmm. uh, Bruce Willis took the role of John McClane after it had been turned down by Robert De Niro did you see Robert De Niro playing John McClane there? Um, no, probably not. Uh, but you know, but also, could you see Frank Sinatra playing Robert? Could you see Frank Sinatra playing John McClane? Absolutely. Did you get that fact going on there no. too? You did not. What? No. If I did, oh. I skipped over. it. Oh my gosh! Okay, I got, I got, I got to own the plate right well, now. Quick. Well, you know what, Kyle? You had the cast. You could have said who was chosen to be in uh, for the roles, but you slacked. I've never slacked in my entire <laughs> life. I am a constant uh, worker. But no, I got I got to take this real quick here for a second. Because like Frank Sinatra was originally offered the role of John McClane due to a contract clause when they original originally bought the rights to the book to make this movie, and I believe he was like seventy at the time, so like <laughs> clearly could not make the movie. He could have, so he declined, and then the role went to um, John uh, no, John McClane. Dad. John McClane, Bruce Willis, uh, <laughs> down the line. But no, Frank Sinatra was originally going to play. <laughs> John McClane for yeah. a long time. Um, the Deputy Chief John, uh, Robinson says that John McClane uh, could be a blankety blank bartender for all we know because of McClane's claim to be able to spot a phony ID. Prior to becoming a well known actor, Bruce Willis was, in fact, a bartender. So he probably could spot a phony Pretty ID. Pretty good, too. Yeah. Uh, when Powell fan. circles a N- Nakatomi parking lot, McClane looks on saying, Who's driving this car? Stevie Wonder? As Argyle waits in the limo parking in the garage, Skeletons by in Stevie closet, Wonder yeah. is playing on the radio. Skeletons in your closet. The great song. Yeah. At 131 minutes, this is the longest of the Die Hard movies. Due to the tourist interest in the Fox Plaza building in Los Angeles, people are now forbidden from taking photos directly outside of the building. Oh, wow. Yeah. All right, <laughs> Kyle, since you didn't do your job, I'm getting ready to do it. Are you ready? Go for it. These are the roles of John McClane. Tell me if you think yes or no they could have played them. All right. Richard Gere. No. Sylvester Sloan. No, no, no. Harrison Ford. Yes. Mel Gibson. No. We gotta remember this is back in the eighties. So. I know I know. Still okay. no. Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> no. Clint Eastwood. I would love to see it, but no. <laughs> Robert De Niro, you already answered. Uh Charles Bronson. Charles Bronson. That would be an interesting <laughs> movie. Die. <laughs> so no, but also I'd like to see it. Don Johnson. Uh, he could do it. Richard Dean Anderson. I think that would be a good one. That actually sounds pretty good. Burt Reynolds. <laughs> uh, you know, he could have done it. Yeah. And Michael Madsen. Michael Madsen. Uh, yeah, he could do it. I could see it. <laughs> uh, George Takai wanted to play Takagi, and John McTiernan really wanted to cast him, but Takai's agents got things mixed up. 
Takai was not very happy. Oh man, that would have been really cool to see him. Yeah, yeah. would. You know, especially like he, you know, he hasn't he hasn't got enough movie roles in his entire career besides you know Star Trek. In of course. one of the most famous quoted uh, quotes from this movie, uh, we all know it's the Yippie Kaye. Blah, 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 blah. Yeah. This is uh, the edited for TV version. John McClane's famous line was changed to Yippie Kaye Melon Farmer. Okay, <laughs> Melon Farmer. Yeah. Uh, well, K, George Takei, not Takai. Whatever. Takei, <laughs> You say Takei, I say Takai. I, I was a big fan of his YouTube channel for a long time, so I got to hear his name a lot. It's George Takei. Great guy. We'll just call him by his Star Trek name. Uh, Wait, what is the Star Trek name again? <laughs> Kyle. I forgot. Oh no! Well, I'm it's gonna been a let while. you. I'm gonna let you what? Suffer. You're so cruel. Um, Sam Neill turned down the role of Hans Gruber. I think he could have done it. He would have been pretty cool. Sam Neill is good at everything he does, of course. When yeah. McLean is speaking with Gruber, who is impersonating Bill Clay. John McCain. You what? Huh? John McCain. Sorry. I think you said, I think you said McCain for a second. John McCain. Oh, yeah, we probably did. <laughs> when McLean is speaking with Gruber, who is impersonating Bill Clay. There is an awful strike behind Gruber. There are three names in order uh, on it in order: Degova, D'Souza, and DeBont. Referring to production designer, screenwriter, and cinematographer. Sulu, got it. <laughs> oh, it was driving you crazy. Yeah. I have now. Uh, Bruce Willis and Demi Moore tied the knot at the Golden Nugget Hotel in Las Vegas during the shoot. Moore having recently broken her engagement to Emilio Estevez. Little Richard presided over the ceremony, and the former Bratback member Ali Sheedy was a bridesmaid. So, Bruce Willis had an interesting life. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I just can't imagine. Um, here you go. What about John Travolta as the role of John McClane? Oh, I could see it. Yeah. Uh, 20th Century Fox. Right wouldn't time. allow it because Travolta was considered a has been at the time. What? Wow. Yeah. Wow. And this is like before Face Off and his whole but, career research. But they, but they, but, but they did that. go back in 1989 and Bruce Willis and Travolta worked together in a little movie called Look Who's Talking. Look Who's Talking 2 and Pulp Fiction. Mm-hmm. All right. Here we go for Holly Gennaro McClain. Linda Hamilton. Yes or no? I, I Yes. Linda Hamilton. Is Gina great. Davis. Yeah. That totally. Deborah Winger. Yes. Michelle Pfeiffer. There's a lot of things I'll just say yes to right here. I think. Jamie Lee Curtis. Yes. Carrie Fisher. Yes. Kelly McGillis. Yes. I think they could have walled out it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I was like, well, how many female actors just can't play just a strong female? Like, she totally could. You know, like, you know uh, unless you're like 20 years older than younger than him, then it doesn't make sense. <laughs> Bruce Willis improvised the Hi, Honey at the end of the film when Hans is holding Holly hostage. <laughs> um, we talked about that, and we talked about that because they were all on that one list, so. Oh, here you go. I forgot to add. Christy, uh, Christy Alley was considered for the role of Holly Gennaro. No. <laughs> okay. Uh, but the producer I just said, Cheers, like, any actor could do it. Then we hear that. But the producer like, of Cheers, uh, James Burroughs, wouldn't let her take the role. But then again, she started with Bruce Willis uh, and Luke was talking in 99. Wasn't... No, I'm thinking of Woody Harrelson. I'm sorry. <laughs> Other like Woody Harrelson, I thought it was Bruce Willis for a second in Cheers for a few episodes. Uh, Al Pacino was considered for the role of John McClane, too. And Nick Nolte actually turned down the lead. Wouldn't he have been coming up there though for like forty years ago? Like now, or like thirty five years ago now, or like whatever. Or Al Pacino, he'd be kind of up there for the role for John McClane, wouldn't he? Uh, not really, because he was just in Raging Bull in nineteen eighty, I believe. So it'd be eight years after that. So oh, I don't okay, think so, yeah, okay. yeah, it'd still be good. It's sellable. sellable. Yeah. it would have worked. Yeah. Um, several people involved with this movie also worked on the Ghostbuster movies. William Atherton played Walter Peck and Reginald Johnson uh, in the small Ghostbusters in 84. Richard Edlin, who also worked on the special effects on the first Ghostbusters as well. And William Von Holmberg, who played James, would go on to play Vigo, the Carpathian, in Ghostbusters 2. Oh, man. 
<laughs> he shall not be named. Uh, do, not, do not read the actor's life story, by the way. <laughs> Tom Berenger turned down the role of John McClane. I think he could have done it, too. Mm-hmm. Um, the opening scene is actually filmed on an airplane that is being towed around in circles. Sure, why not? <laughs> when it works, it works. All right. Uh, this, was a, this is probably one of the most interesting facts I found about this movie. Bruce Willis suffered permanent hearing loss while shooting, no pun intended, a scene in the Nakatomi conference room. When McLean kills the terrorist, he said, next time you have a chance to kill someone, don't hesitate by firing his brother through the conference table and gesturing afterwards. And he's like, thanks for the advice. He suffered severe damage to his left ear. As previously stated in Trivia Fact, the stunt weapons uh, that are used by the... They have these engineered blanks, if you will, um, that they wanted to be extra loud and produced extreme muzzle flashes for the dramatic effect on screen. Mm. Uh, the closed quarters under the table and the use of the plexiglass to protect the actor from flying shell casings and wood splinters further increased the sound effect. The reverberations of all that. Yep. In sure 2019, Willis said in an interview, due to an accident on the first Die Hard, I suffered two-thirds partial hearing loss in my left ear. And I'm to say, what? <laughs> the actor has worn a hearing aid for years, unbeknownst to most of his fans. And even um, now, recently, I remember like the movie. Um, I think it was like it was Cosmic Sin or whatever the movie was. Most recently came out. He said he's almost um, getting. He has to wear earpieces now um, when he's acting because he can't remember his lines because he has a, a, a neurogenitive disorder, unfortunately. But right. also, like he needs a hearing aid just here in the first place, and now he needs to be fed his lines too to do any film. Kind and of most recently, we have the tragedy on the set of Rust. Um, uh, yeah, recently Alec news today, not to wait so. at all. Um, but that, well. For the, for, by the time this podcast comes out, it'll be a few months old. Right, but like, right. Uh, right now, as we're recording this podcast, you know, the situation with Alec Baldwin and the filming of Russ, and we, unfortunately... Um, they say uh, it might just be scrapped altogether now, so... I wouldn't be surprised. Right. I, I couldn't see a movie coming today, but we'll see. Uh, painted backing wrapped around the 34th uh, floor set to create Outside L.A. It was 380 foot long and featured animated lights and various lighting techniques to create day and night effects. It's still in Fox's inventory and is periodically used in other films, so... Talk about a wrap around your car. They wrapped around the entire building. Yeah, it just got done. Yeah. Uh, the helicopter flying around the building near the end of the film took six months of preparation, and they only had two hours to film it. It took three runs and nine camera crews. Everyone within 500 feet of the line of flight had to be an employee. <laughs> I, I don't have their cast off the top of my head right now, but uh, <laughs> the, two C, the two FBI agents are just... Oh, Johnson and Johnson. Yeah, Johnson and Johnson. No relation. Yeah. <laughs> Guys are hilarious, man. I know, I got. Like, they're in the helicopter. Like, Just like Saigon, man. Like, <laughs> I was in middle school. <laughs> it kind of reminded me of uh, what was it, Apocalypse Now with the the, the helicopter pilot. Thing. Yeah, I know. Yeah, definitely like two crazy. Just like, oh my god. Yeah. yeah. Uh, for the shot where Hans Gruber falls from the top of the building, Alan Rickman was actually falling from a 21 foot high model. He was holding on to a stuntman and falling onto an airbag. To get the right reaction, the stuntman dropped Rickman on the count of two, not three. So, so he's like, what? His real eyes going wide there. He's like, why? You said three. Um, Al Leong uh, improvised a scene where he's eating a crunch bar and a Mars bar a few moments before the SWAT team ended. I thought that was funny. He's standing there with all that candy um, before the shootout. He felt the scene could use some comic relief. Uh, Leong made sure to ask director John McTiernan for permission, claiming that he didn't want to get yelled at for taking food. <laughs> That'd be Kyle. Kyle be able to eat popcorn. <laughs> yeah, just going for it. Just going on it. Why not? <laughs> uh, the scene where John McClane tries to smash the window with a chair in order to get the attention of Al Powell required multiple takes because the glass window was too strong to break from a single blow as depicted in the film. 
In fact, the glass window was so strong that Bruce Willis actually ended up breaking the chair before he broke the window. Willis and the crew can be seen having a laugh over this in the vintage making up documentary. That's hilarious. And also, like, I totally understand, like, especially if they were actually were higher up, like, those skyscraper windows have to compensate for the pressure difference at that height. So, like, they have to be really strong windows. It makes sense they took a lot to break. As in the film, Reginald Vell Johnson didn't meet Bruce Willis until the very end of the movie. So, that's pretty oh, wow. cool. On screen body count? How many do you think, Kyle? On screen. Okay, I'm going to guess real quick. Um, On screen body count, including some police officers that died. I'm going to say. Right around 34. 21. Way off. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The music cue where Powell shoots Carl at the end of the film was actually an unused track from James Horner's Academy uh, Award-nominated score for Aliens in 1986. So I thought that was pretty cool that they threw some alien stuff in there. Hmm. Uh, Throughout the course of this movie, Bruce Willis's undershirt goes from white to solid army green then changes to a mix of some white and some green. So, um, Heck of a night. (laughs) All right, Kyle. That's all the fun facts we have. Now we're going to get down to the nitty gritty, gritty, grimy. Okay. Kyle, first of all, what did you think of this movie? And do you classify it as a Christmas movie or as not a Christmas movie? This is going to be fun. That's, I, <laughs> he's more excited than I Kyle's like, I don't really care. <laughs> yeah. Joe's got more fun than I am here. But no, Die Hard is an absolute classic, one of those premier action films that like is so influential. Wait, what did you just say? One of those premier action Thank films. Thank you. That's all. That's, it is definitely an action film. Also, sure, Christmas film, why not? Well, now, <laughs> yeah. now, now you're fine. We'll get to your why not pretty soon. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it's one of the most premier action films and it's so influential even today. Um, we wouldn't have films like John Wick or any like other, other films like that today if not for Bruce Willis having like this everyman hero who can just take down, you know, leech to bad guys and all kind of fun stuff too. Um, inspired a lot of bad sequels, some good sequels, and uh, I think it's a great film overall. So no, it's a absolute classic, absolute classic worth watching today. Um, you know, bring your kids, why not? Who cares? It's R-rated, but it's still a fun movie. <laughs> All that fun stuff. And uh, I think it's a great film. Um, as in terms of classifying it as a Christmas movie, I say sure, but I certainly don't feel strongly about it either way. If someone would say it's not a Christmas movie, then I say, like, oh, sure, why not? Which Jimbo will here pretty soon. Um, so, Jimbo, what do you classify it as and uh, how much you like this film? Well, okay, let me let me go ahead and start. It was, to me, it was just okay. Um, when I think of action movies, I think of Rambo. I think of uh, Schwarzenegger, you know, Commando, Predator. Terminator. All those all right. Uh, to me, that's an action movie. This is an action movie. I'll give them that. Mm. I'm just not a really big Bruce Willis fan. I can't help it. Uh, when you when you have so many other 80s action films, Jean-Claude Van Damme, all them people, I would put Bruce Willis at the lower end of this. I know some people put him up higher. That's fine. You have your own opinion. But let me throw down some of the things of the why or why is not Christmas movie. Um, people argue that this is set at Christmas time. I hear that all the time, right? Yeah. Well, let me just tell you, after watching this movie and taking notes, okay, there is no Christmas decorations as the limo is driving. There are no decorations in the lobby or outside the plaza till the end of the movie when you see uh, some. None when the bad guys are driving in their trucks. None when the fire trucks. Uh, there's no decorations. Then the only thing at the radio operator when he first contacts them is a small little Christmas tree on top of the uh, soundboard. There's no decorations at the gas station when... Uh, uh, Powell's buying his Twinkies. <laughs> uh, he also said that uh, people, uh, when he was alive, that they would just start throwing Twinkies at him. <laughs> to be like, here, we thought you did these. 
Yeah. Uh, there is a tree when police are moving into the lobby. If you look in the background, there's a small lighted frosty on a table by a computer. There's a snowflake with lights on at the telephone uh, poles at, towards the end of the movie. So what you're saying is it sounds like a classic L.A. Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, even when he's upstairs looking out the windows, you would think you would see some Christmas lights somewhere. It's L.A. Somewhere. It's L.A. It's it Cal- doesn't matter. It's California. It doesn't matter. It's L.A. Yeah, that place is a godless place. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> that's wow, too hard. It's, 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 it's Hollywood. It's the, <laughs> that's wow, too God. cruel. But <laughs> people, people say that, oh, his wife's name is Holly. Uh-huh. Yeah, it is. So you're telling me that every movie that's named Holly would be considered a Christmas movie. It's up for the running, at least. No. What? Sure, why not? No. Just because the lady's name is Holly doesn't make it a Christmas movie. Is Holly a Christmas name or not? Um, there's uh, also, um, there is a, you know, that they wanted to be home for Christmas. If you if you see the big, um, when he's crawling through the, um, was it the, the vent? The vents, yes. He's like, hey, come out to the coast. We'll have a few laughs. Nothing about Christmas. Nothing about, oh, I'm coming to my family. Nothing about any of that. Mm-hmm. Um, they say, oh, he's carrying a teddy bear for his kid. Well, yeah, any dad that's going to see his kid, not even just at Christmas time. Especially but haven't seen them in like three months. Six months or whatever. Yeah, you know, right. You're going to bring your kids something. Um, and speaking of that, why did he only have one teddy bear when he has two kids? He likes mm-hmm. one more. Like, yeah, he that's what I was saying. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> he's um, a bad parent for one. <laughs> So there's there's family problems, obviously, because she's has changed her name, made a name, back to her main name, Gennaro, mm-hmm. instead of McLean. Yeah. Um, so you can't tell me that, oh, you know, I was invited out here for all this. You yeah, know, yeah. Well, it's really about bringing the nuclear family back together. That's pretty Christmas-like to me. Right. I mean, does he use the machine gun and he says, ho, 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 now I have a machine gun, and then mm-hmm. puts a sand on Sure. Where did he get him? God, where did no, he get him? Sand Claus. There are some. There are some uh, decorations. There's like a lighter frosty by a uh, computer, and there's also like another light up Christmas tree somewhere. Um, so there's that. Now let me move over to this second page of notes I have. Okay, that was on my phone because I was typing as I was watching. I understand. Is Die Hard a Christmas movie? No, I do not believe it is. Is it set at Christmas time? Sure, but Die Hard should be an action movie and it is classified as an action movie just the same way as gremlins i would not classify as a christmas movie even Mulga- or uh, gizmo not Mulga- that's jungle book even gizmo was actually a christmas present for billy if you remember right and you have the stupid gremlins running around with the christmas lights singing <laughs> jingle bells i love the scene but to me that is more of a horror comedy i wouldn't classify that as a christmas movie um so when you um Let's see. Another thing is, when you go to the Christmas store this holiday season, go through your local Walmart, go through your local Target, go through your local anything. There is no Die Hard posted with the Christmas section at the end caps or anything. The only time they're there is when crazy people take up all the copies of Die Hard and they shovel them there and they take like Snoopy's Christmas out or whatever. So uh, that's when you see those. So that's Mm -hmm. another plus. Just because a movie is set around a holiday doesn't make it a holiday movie. So the same way um, you could say that The Fugitive with uh, Harrison Ford, when he joins the St. Patrick's Day Parade, you could say it's a St. Patrick's Day movie. Sure. No, it just happened at the time of the St. Patrick's. Mm-hmm. Um, just something that was added into the movie. Now, I know a lot of people are going to be mad, but let me end with this. I found probably something that sums it up the you, best You got a everybody. silver bullet? Are you on? ready for this? Go for it. I found the Die Hard poem set to... Was the night before Christmas by Jake, Jake 
Tapper. Okay. Are you go ready? For it, Chimbo. I'm all ears. I'm the ear man. Let's go. And this is going to sum up how I feel about it pretty much, too. Well, the ending of it. Go for it. "'Twas the night before Christmas at Nakatami Tower, when our story of homecoming begins with brute power. At Los Angeles Airport, meet our savior, McLean. With toys for his kids, he disembarks from his plane. To not see that this tells about Christmas's folly, did I mention that Mrs. McLean's name is Holly? How about some Christmas music, McLean asks of Argyle. That is Christmas music, the driver says with a smile. To reunite with Holly, his aim is shared with shy laughter. Twould be a holiday miracle to last ever after. You throw quite the uh, you throw quite party, says John to Tagi-san. I didn't know their Christmas in Japan. Sandpan. I guess that rhymes. Okay. <laughs> that, that was a stretch. Uh, John is worried from travel. Holly offers a bed. While down in the lobby, the guard shot in the head. <laughs> And Theo, and Kyle, and Tony, Ed Fritz. Mm-hmm. Into the party, the arm thugs run a blitz. Our girl still waits. This is long before Uber, while Havoc is wreaked by the evil Hans Gruber. John McClane, he escapes, saves the day. He's just gotta. Without shoes, he tracks blood, as if bearing wounds of stigmata. One thug tries to kill him, but that German's too slow. Now John McClane has a machine gun. Ho, ho, ho. Sergeant Al Powell is told of disturbance and responds to the fake guard feigns a bit of perturbance. Does he hear anything? The answer is no, except for the song, Let It Snow, Let It Snow. Merry Christmas, says Powell, not realizing the peril, driving off while he sings a beloved Christmas carol. A corpse fall from above with a clear rationale. McLean says to the cop, Welcome to the party, pal. <laughs> Gruber takes to McLean, or rather he sneers. Survival would be a miracle he plays on his fears. The policeman is bloodied in dire need of succor. yippee ki McLean says. Mother, finish the word. <laughs> uh, a woman hostage with child in and of its glory is also a part of our Christmas Eve story. With Johnny Mick traveling great distance, with hope and with love of fighting evil resistance. Theo, a wise man who's also quite naughty, is stealing the money and spirit quite haughty. Ellis, the Judas, attempts an enmity by disclosing the cowboy's secret identity. McLean gets a bad feeling and asks Sergeant Powell to relay to his wife a redemptive avow. When things panned out for her, I should have been behind her all the way. He says this thinking he'll never see the light of day. I got it, says the sergeant, but you can tell your, tell her yourself. And a scene that's as seasonal as a reindeer or elf. I hope so, but that's up to the guy upstairs, says McLean, who's traveled far for peace but encountered only pain. If Christmas is love, rebirth, and a savior, McLean was all of the above, is his diehard behavior. God was truly with him, the sex was empirical. At Nakatami, they experienced a miracle. That Die Hard is a Christmas film seems to me just a fact. I declare this without any tact. But whether you agree or you disapproval won't cease, I wish you a season of love and peace. So, so I came to the conclusion that it doesn't matter what I think. It doesn't matter what Kyle thinks. It doesn't matter what you think. It's matter. Well, I mean, it matters to you what you want. If you want to watch it at Christmas time, watch it at Christmas time. If you want to call it a Christmas movie, call it a Christmas movie. Just because I don't call it a Christmas movie doesn't mean you can't call it a Christmas movie. Everybody, this has divided fans of movies for years. So I, I just thought that was a pretty cool uh, poem that Jack 
uh, Tapper, Trapper, not Jack Trapper. That's a yeah, uh, company. Different guy. Different guy. <laughs> yeah. Different uh, guy. Jack Tapper uh, that I found on his Twitter when I was searching up stuff. So I thought that was really well done. And, and I think he summed it up pretty, pretty well at the end where it doesn't matter. You know, I still wish you peace and happiness and, and Christmas the, cheer and all that. Christmas cheer. Right? Love and joy. So I know some of our fans will get a kick out of that, that they, it was all about the diehard in the situation. So, yeah, like I said to me, it's an okay movie. Um, like I said, I'm not a big diehard die hard fan. fan. Well, yeah. not a big Bruce Willis fan. Um, I like action movies, so I would go as far as to say I think Die Hard Avengers is actually a better film. I think. <laughs> no, Kyle. No, you just started something there. So. Exactly. Yeah. Maybe we'll get to that in a future podcast. I'm <laughs> lying. Right. Yeah, but also like on, on like in terms of, like of me thinking it's a Christmas movie. It does play Christmas in the Hollers by Run DMC, so that gives it like a Christmas <laughs> spirit in my heart. Nothing says more Christmas than Run DMC to me. <laughs> <laughs> right. So that's it. That's our uh, Christmas uh, story for this episode. Um, we hope you guys stay tuned because we are getting ready to have a lot of our podcast friends uh, join us, uh, sending in stories. Make sure you go uh, listen to them, give them a review, uh, tell them the tragedy of cinema sent you, and we hope that you all have a Merry Christmas. Absolutely. Merry Christmas. And to all, a happy good night. <laughs> everyone. If you don't know who I am, my name is Chris Kringle. But since you've been so good this year, you can call me Santa. Except for you. Yes, I'm talking to you. The one in the car listening. You haven't been so nice this year, haven't you? <laughs> Got you. <laughs> You all have done so well this year. But now to the matter at hand. I received a very early Christmas wish letter from a young man by the name of James. It appears he has a podcast and asked me for help. Now, where did I put that letter? Ah, here it is. If I may... I would like to read it to you. <clears throat> Dear Mr. Kringle, Ooh, no proper. My name is James. I have a podcast I call The Tragedies of Cinema. This has been such a hard year for everyone with all that's been going on. I want to change things, even if it's just for a short while. Do you think maybe you can help me out? I want to have a Christmas special, but I don't know where to start. I do know that for the first special guest, I want it to be funny. Something that would put a smile on people's face. Do you think you can help me with that part? Oh, James, what luck you must have. I just received a package just this morning from a young lady. Where is
Ha ha ha. From Leslie Fear. She sent me a copy of her podcast because I want to know. She wants me to listen to the podcast, and I have. I caught Mrs. Claus listening to it earlier. I was in the study when I heard her just laughing. She was laughing in a way that I haven't heard for a long time. Well, I had to go see what was making her so happy. And guess what, James? It was Leslie's podcast. So I'm sending it your way early. You should be getting it right about now. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Because I Want to Know podcast. I'm here with my friend from across the pond, Helen Kelly, in the UK, actually just south of London. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. I tell you what, I love you. You have been a friend of mine for years, and we kind of do this every year, and and every year we kind of switch this up. So this year, I'm going to make fun of you guys about what you eat, and maybe the way you... <laughs> way you pronounce some of your things. Uh, even though this is kind of a Christmas episode and we'll touch a little bit on that. Um, let's talk about your breakfast stuff. What, what's up with the whole beans over toast in the morning? So I would say technically we don't have that as a breakfast. We tend to have that as a dinner. Oh, really? Yeah, like sometimes, so the kids obviously are at school and they'll get a cooked meal at school. So sometimes when they come home, We'll just do, uh, it's normally beans, cheese on toast. And it, that's literally what it is. It's just a can of beans yeah. over toast. Yeah, so toast, cheese, beans on top. I, and then a side of, you know, got to have some sort of vegetables. So we normally give them some sweet corn or cucumber so that I don't feel like a bad mum. <laughs> While you're drinking your wine. No. Uh, <laughs> and also, okay, I've noticed also, because I watch way too much TikTok, you guys all have electric kettles there, correct? Yes. Well, we have coffee makers. We don't have kettles. We, I don't even think we really know how to make a proper cup of tea. You don't have a kettle at all? No, we have coffee makers. We have a Keurig, you know? Okay, yeah. We have coffee makers too. Well, but what about, so I'm guessing like when you do your vegetables in the pan or something, do you heat the water up on the hob first? On the what first? <laughs> on the hob. <laughs> what the heck is that? What do you call the top where you put your pan when you're cooking? Oh, the cooktop. Oh, okay, cooktop. Haven't heard that before. Oh, no. We call it a hob. A hob? H-O-B? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Anyway, we don't put... I, when I think my vegetables, I either... I don't... Do you boil your vegetables? What do you do with those? Well, no, I tend to use the steamer. But for things like, you know, if we're making mashed potato, then you know, I'd normally boil my potatoes beforehand to soften them up. Oh, okay. okay that, yeah. All right. I microwave them. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, you just put them in a bowl with water and microwave them. That's what I do, you know? Uh, got you. Got you. Yeah, but you, yeah, so you don't use a kettle at all? No, we don't use... I mean, I... It's random to me. <laughs> I know. Well, I'm watching this Don Farmer chick on TikTok. Anyway, I don't know if you ever watch TikTok and watch her. And she's always talking about having her kettle. And I'm like, what? And she's saying, yeah, that's a standard thing. And I was like, okay, I got to talk to Helen about this because I don't know what that means. So what about if you had like a, a peppermint tea or something like that? Any tea, would you just get the hot water from your... Does your coffee machine just make hot water out of it? It would. It would make hot water. I mean, that it would do that. But we would just heat up water in the microwave. And then put a tea bag in it. 
in the microwave. Excellent. <laughs> now, there are, I do have an ice tea maker that like, you put ice in one part and on the top, you fill it up with water and it gets real, real hot and it steeps the tea or whatever. And then it just pushes it down into the ice. But you guys don't have ice, so that doesn't make sense to you, right? <laughs> we do have ice. <laughs> oh, yeah, you can't go to a restaurant and order iced tea or ice water. You guys don't put ice in anything. Not really. We do in soft drinks, like as in um, fizzy drinks, so like your Coke and Pepsi and things like that. If I ever asked for a glass of water, I wouldn't get, um, wouldn't tend to get ice in it unless I asked for it. So it's just um, like lukewarm? Iced coffees and iced teas are starting to become more of a thing. Oh, okay. Um, okay. Yeah, they never used to be, but they are, I've noticed quite often Starbucks and Costa and places like that are starting to do it, especially in the summer. Okay. And since we're doing a Christmas podcast for the tragedy of cinema, I thought we could talk a little bit about Christmas. So tell me about your tradition of Christmas crackers. Yeah, so we have them on the table with the Christmas dinner and we normally uh, crack the crackers. Well, different people do it at different times. We tend to do it normally after our starter, before we have the main or something. Um, You know what I thought they were. What did you think they were? I thought they were like crackers you put in soup or something. I don't know. I'm like, what the heck are that? And then I figured it out while you were talking to me that they're like little mini fireworks. Yes. Yeah, they're like, well, they make a little popping sound. But yeah, basically. Okay. They're just bits of cardboard in the shape of a cracker. Not a, not a biscuit cracker or... can't describe it. It's like almost like a cardboard bit in the middle then it squeezes in and you've got like some ribbon or something around and then comes out again so that you both grab each side and you pull it and then when it pulls whoever ends up with the biggest bit with all the stuff in wins that stuff basically oh so there's stuff inside yeah you get like a christmas joke a christmas hat and then some plastic tatty type things whether it's like some weird little toy or a key ring or something like that oh gotcha okay well that sounds not fun no i'm kidding i'm kidding it sounds like it's a lot of fun actually um you guys what is boxing day what is that we don't have that here oh don't you so it's the day after christmas so it's the 26th of december it's always the 26th it's always the day after christmas day it used to be like a bank holiday a bit like a sunday where before back in the day shops didn't used to open and you know it was all still closed and things like that but now and for quite a few years we have opened and we have boxing day sales it's a bit like your we well we do black friday now obviously we have to copy you don't we we have to copy everything the americans do (laughs) but what is what's boxing day why did you call it that boxing there will be some sort of reason that i do not know (laughs) I'm just, I'm just picturing two kangaroos with little boxing gloves on, just boxing each other. <laughs> no, I want there. Yeah, there's got to be something. I'm gonna Google it quickly. Okay. Okay. Well, until then, yeah. So I heard that you guys have a very popular Christmas song called "Fairy Tale in New York." We do indeed. Yeah. And I've never heard of that song. Haven't you? No. It's like really old now. I've never, I'm going to have to look it up because I've never heard of it. So anybody listening, it's called "Fairy Tale in New York," and it's very British. I can't even say that right. And uh, they listen to it all the time. So I'm going to listen to it uh, as well. Because I had no, I just figured that out before I started recording with you. And I wanted to talk to you about it. So that's hilarious. Did you figure out the whole Boxing Day thing? Yeah. So apparently it comes from a time when the rich used to box up gifts to give to the poor. And Boxing Day was traditionally a day off for the servants. And the day when they received a special Christmas box from their masters. Well, that's sweet. (laughs) 
<laughs> you, you have to work Christmas Day, but you can have Boxing Day off. <laughs> yeah, so, well, at least they get one day off, right? Yeah. <laughs> and the peasants rejoiced. Oh my gosh. Oh, that's so sad, but but sweet too at the same time. Oh, and by the way, I do know that um, I found this out the other day. I was like, you know, why? I, I Googled this. I said, why do every time I see a child that's in school in the UK, they're always wearing uniforms. And I'm like, is every single school a private school? Because only private schools here, the kids wear uniforms. And it's everywhere there. Every school, local or not, or public or not, they all wear uniforms, correct? Yes. And I think our version of what a public and a private school are different as well. If I was talking to someone from Canada a couple of weeks ago, and am I right in thinking that your public school is like, would it be like a, it's a better school, like a paid for school type thing? And a private school is the sort of government owned school. Is that right? It's actually the opposite. Oh, which is the same as us. I was getting confused. Yeah. Anyway, we'll we'll ignore the Canadian guy no, then. Yeah. <laughs> Just oh, private schools are like paid for schools. Right. And their uniforms tend to be sometimes a little bit more posh looking, I suppose you'd say. Um, but yes, our public schools, we have to wear uniform. The boys wear it for um, what we call primary. And I think, is that your kindergarten? Not high school, the, the years yeah, below it, high school. Yeah, it, we have elementary then we have intermediate, and then we have middle school, and then we have high school. Okay, so middle school and the one before that, whatever that one was, yeah, they were even yeah. Um, when my youngest was in what we call preschool, um, yeah. which is probably your elementary, he was wearing a uniform there as well. Well, I noticed because, you know, you and I are friends and I follow you and I always notice your kids are so handsomely dressed for school. But you know what I love about that? I love that every child is dressed the same. So you don't ever know the class that they're from. And to me, that is so much nicer in such a gentler way of allowing those kids to go to school and at least take one thing off the plate of something that they could be made fun of, you know? Yeah. Totally. And it's always been a thing. Like I wore uniform when I was at school. Um, I don't know. I think there might be a couple of more, a couple schools that we have that might not wear uniform. But yeah, the general rule is there's normally a uniform. And yeah, like you say, it is nice that they're all wearing the same thing. Yeah. And there's none of this. Oh, you haven't got a Nike, whatever. And Okay. So we got to do a quick little word thing before we go. So we're going to do comparing words in the UK and United States. So the first word is eggplant. What do you guys call it? Aubergine. What? <laughs> and I don't even know why we call it different things. Well, I don't even know what that is. Okay. Aubergine. Is that what it's called? Yeah. Aubergine. Okay. And yeah. how do you say vitamin? Vitamin. <laughs> <laughs> I had to think because I nearly copied you and said vitamins. That's okay. Now, how do you say zebra? Zebra. See, you guys say Z for Z and we say Z. Oh, isn't that funny? I never thought about you guys calling it zebra. Um, Okay, also, and we know, I know what you call sweaters. Yeah. (laughs) Jumpers. Yeah. Jumpers. I don't even use with, you know, an actual jumper. I know. It's like, I'm thinking somebody jumping off a roof. Oh, no. It's not that bad. Oh, and diapers. You don't call them diapers. What do you call them? No, nappies. Nappies. What do you call dummies? Dummies? A pacifier. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, we don't. Dummies? That's going to give a kid a a complex very early on. And also, because it is Christmas, you don't call nutcrackers nutcrackers. Nutcrackers as in... You know, are they called pantomime? 
Oh, right, yeah. We call them pants. Yeah, like, so you go to the theatre and see a Christmas-related show. Oh, well, I just, you know, the Nutcracker things, the little, they look like little soldiers and they're in wood. Okay, yeah, that's... Nutcrackers. Oh, you do? I thought you called them something else. Okay, see, I don't know. Uh, yeah, we call them Nutcrackers. Well, and also, one more thing. You say Happy Christmas, we say Merry Christmas. Why do you think that is? I don't know. Yeah, we do say both, but we do tend to more happy. I don't know. It is more happy. Maybe it's not very merry right now. But no, thank you guys for listening to just a little part of my podcast with one of my very good friends. Listen to me on Spotify, Apple, Alexa, Audible, anywhere you find podcast. And Helen, thank you for joining me on Because I Want to Know. And guys, Merry Christmas. Oh, Merry Christmas or Happy Christmas. <laughs> Did you get a good laugh out of Leslie? I know we did. As a matter of fact, I believe a few of my helpers here in the shop have requested that I let them play it on their next break. That surprises me because normally, they just want to drink hot chocolate and sing. I'll be honest, I love a good Christmas song, but to hear it every single day, Day. It's like the debate over whether Die Hard is a Christmas movie or not. It gets old. Oh, and just for the record, I say no. It's not a Christmas movie. But don't mention that around here. These little fellows here can get quite upset over that subject. So shh. Let's get back to James's wish list, shall we? <clears throat> Santa, if you are able to grant my wish, then I suspect you have already started to do so. I don't want to appear greedy, and I'm not, I promise. But Christmas is also about feeling good. Even in hard times, like we're in now, we need to be reminded of the good at the same time. Do you think you can find me something like that as well? <laughs> I don't want to push my luck, but do you know any famous podcasters who would do that? I really do hope you can. Well, Jane, your luck is persistent. I know everybody. And everybody knows me. And I just happen to know two podcasters who would fit this perfect. So, I'm going to send you a very special episode from Hibbilly Horror Story. Here we go. It's on its way. Hey guys, I'm Jerry. And I'm Tracy. We wanted to thank the guys from Tragedy and Cinema for including us in their second annual Christmas presentation. So thank you so much. Yes, thank you guys so much for having us. We really appreciate it. It was such an honor. I think you're going to really like this story. It's a little sad. I'm not going to lie. It made me tear up a little bit. But at the same time, I think it's an uplifting story that embodies the true meaning of Christmas. So enjoy. Thank you. 
Pepper's Last Gift Whatever life threw at us each year, come Christmas, our family had one constant tradition. Our dog Pepper opened our presents for us. When our black lab mix was just a gangly adolescent puppy, we had only given her unbreakable gifts to unwrap, things like pajamas and steering wheel covers. She proved to be so careful that we soon gave her any gift that wasn't edible. Every time, Pepper found the seam in the wrapping paper with her snout and held the present down gingerly with her forepaws. Her front teeth pried up the lip of the paper with the utmost care. Then she removed every inch of wrapping paper before stepping back to lie in the midst of our gathering. She never bit or scratched the gifts themselves. Friends and relatives who joined our family celebrations never believed Pepper could be so delicate until they witnessed her talents. Watching our sweet dog unwrapped gifts always warmed the holiday, which was often a little bittersweet because of college, studying abroad, or work commitments often kept my two sisters and myself away. One year, everyone made it home for a Christmas together. I was back from Ireland, Casey flew in from Arizona, and Kara visited from college. Mom's jubilance kept her busy baking cookies for all of us. Our Christmas season should have been perfect. It couldn't feel perfect, though, because Pepper's health was deteriorating. Her life had already been longer than we expected. She was 14, and yet her mind was still sharp. Her enthusiasm for life made us feel so much better. But her body could not keep up with her spirit. She had already shown us the usual signs of deafness and stiffness. That year, her hips and back legs started giving out on her. We knew that we were soon going to have to make a very difficult decision. It was likely Pepper's last Christmas, so we decided to make sure that she enjoyed it. On Christmas Eve, we gathered around a tree to open an early present. But her tangled legs could not navigate the boxes and the shredded wrapping paper on the floor. She stumbled over the obstacles and soon she disappeared into the next room. She crumpled back to the floor, as out of the way as she could possibly get. We were heartbroken. Could Pepper even participate in her last Christmas? Pepper stayed on the periphery of all of our holiday activities. Throughout the day, we gave gifts but did not feel very giving. We shared stories over cinnamon rolls that tasted bland. We played games by the tree whose twinkle had dimmed. That evening, Casey said what we had all been thinking. I wish Pepper could have helped open the presents this year. We all put down our mugs of spiced tea. Maybe she still could, Kara said. But there's none left, Mom reminded her. Kara jumped up and left the room. We heard her opening drawers and cabinets in the kitchen. She returned with a box of dog biscuits, scissors, and a roll of tape. Hand me that green paper, Kara told me, pointing at a large sheet at my feet. She cut a small section from the paper and wrapped a single dog treat in it. She held it up as if she had just struck gold. Now there's a present for her. I knelt on the floor next to Kara and I wrapped another dog treat. Casey and Mom joined in too. Soon we had four elegantly wrapped dog biscuits in a roll on the floor. We cleared the floor of all discarded wrapping paper. We tucked our legs under us as we perched out of the way of the furniture. Go get Pepper, we urged Mom. We all bounced like eager children. Mom went into the next room. 
You want to open a present, girl? She coaxed. In a moment, Pepper stuck her head into the room. Her ears were fully perked with anticipation and curiosity. She skidded on stilted legs to the row of presents. She sniffed all four in order and looked back and forth between them. She'd never had such a wide choice of gifts before. Soon, Pepper selected her first Christmas gift. She nimbly turned the present over with her forepaw, just like she was a spry young dog once more. She tugged every last scrap of paper off the dog treat before she chewed it with her customary grace. Our family swelled with glee. Pepper licked the last crumb off of the floor. She eyed the remaining three presents, then turned to Mom as if asking, May I please open another? Go ahead, girl, Mom encouraged. For the next few minutes, Pepper opened each of her Christmas presents. While she did, she reminded us of the sheer joy of being together. Our family felt whole. Not because we were in the same room, city, or country, but because our love bonded us together. In the new year, Pepper let us know that it was time to call the veterinarian. Her passing, while tearful, was peaceful. In its own way, her passing was also a celebration of life, because she gave my family so much love and laughter. Long after I forgot each of my presents, I still cherish Pepper's final Christmas gift. She taught me that no matter where we each spend the holidays, and no matter what the passing year brings, the smallest act of heartfelt giving can unite our family through our love. For me, that knowledge is the strongest lasting gift of all. Zach Hively From our house to yours, Merry Christmas. There you go, James. Is that what you had in mind? Knowing you as well as I do, I'm pretty sure it is exactly what you had in mind. I have no doubt this would be a great Christmas special for you. But according to your letter here, you're not quite done, are you? I see a few more requests here. So let's read on and see how else we can assist you in adding this Christmas joy. The more Christmas joy you share, the easier my job is. So let's keep reading. I'm sorry to keep adding on to this letter, Santa. It's just that I keep thinking of new ideas to make this the best Christmas show ever. Clementine, did you hear that? What do you mean, heard what? You didn't hear that loud thump? Yes, I'm sure it wasn't the clatter of the Christmas ladder. Remind me to limit your Hallmark Channel time. Yes, you can get back to work. I didn't mean to hold you up. Now, where were we? Ah, okay. Do you think it would be a good idea to add a podcast telling us an old classic Christmas story? I hope you do. It would be a good addition to an already awesome episode. What in the world is going on over there? What do you mean, nothing? There is a broken window in the shop. 
And look, there is snow blowing into the shop. Close the hole and clean up the snow before it ruins any toys. What is going on here today? Sorry, James. I I need to deal with this. Let me send you one of my favorite podcast groups. I haven't listened to the Christmas episode yet, but I have no doubt. Kind of Murdery will deliver. Now, don't let the name fool you. I have faith, and so should you. There you go. Take your way. All right, guys, come on. Let's clean that up. Clementine, we talked about this. Come on, Terrence, stop throwing snowballs at the other elves. Warning, Kinda Murdery contains adult themes, explicit language, and descriptions of violence. It is not suitable for anyone, and we recommend you stop listening now. This is Kinda Murdery Insomniac. Stories to stay awake by. Good evening, Merry Christmas, and a Happy Holidays to you, Insomniacs. I'm your host, Zevin Odelberg, and this is Kinda Murdery Insomniac. Stories to stay awake by. I wish you all the best in the new year. Thank you for marching into darkness with me as a member of the Legion of the Bloodshot Eye. As you know, on Insomniac we're diving deep into the darkest corners of human behavior. But tonight we have a very special episode. It is Kinda Murdery's good fortune to be included here on the Tragedy of Cinema's annual Christmas special. It's a wonderful cinema life. In keeping with the spirit of the season, I will not be telling a dark story tonight. Instead, please stay awake with Kinda Murdery as I tell you my favorite Christmas story, a tale that does not explore depravity, greed, or violence, but rather the scope and wonder of the human heart. I give you O. Henry's classic, The Gift of the Magi. One dollar and eighty-seven cents. That was all. And sixty cents of it was in pennies. Pennies saved one and two at a time by bulldozing the grocer and the vegetable man and the butcher until one's cheeks burned with the silent imputation of parsimony that such close dealing implied. Three times Della counted it, one dollar and eighty-seven cents, and the next day would be Christmas. There was clearly nothing to do but flop down on the shabby little couch and howl. So Della did it which instigates the moral reflection that life is made up of sobs, sniffles, and smiles, with sniffles predominating. 
While the mistress of the home is gradually subsiding from the first stage to the second, take a look at the home. A furnished flat at $8 a week. It did not exactly beggar description, but it certainly had that word on the lookout for the mendicancy squad. In the vestibule below was a letter box into which no letter would go, and an electric button from which no mortal finger could coax a ring. Also appertaining thereunto was a card bearing the name Mr. James Dillingham Young. The Dillingham had been flung to the breeze during a former period of prosperity, when its possessor was being paid $30 a week. Now, when income was shrunk to 20 the letters of Dillingham looked blurred, as though they were thinking seriously of contracting to a modest and unassuming D. But whenever Mr. James Dillingham Young came home and reached his flat above, he was called Jim, and greatly hugged by Mrs. James Dillingham Young, already introduced to you as Della, which is all very good. Della finished her cry and attended to her cheeks with the powder rag. She stood by the window, looked dully out at the gray cat walking on a gray fence in a gray backyard. Tomorrow would be Christmas Day, and she had only $1.87 with which to buy Jim a present. She had been saving every penny she could for months with this result. $20 a week doesn't go far. Expenses had been greater than she had calculated. They always are. Only $1.87 to buy a present for Jim. Her Jim. Many a happy hour she had spent planning for something nice for him. Something fine and rare and sterling. Something just a bit near to being worthy of the honor of being owned by Jim. There was a pier glass between the windows of the room. Perhaps you have seen pier glass in an $8 flat. A very thin and very agile person may, by observing his reflection in a rapid sequence of longitudinal strips, obtain a fairly accurate conception of his looks. Della, being slender, had mastered the art. Suddenly she whirled from the window and stood before the glass. Her eyes were shining brilliantly, but her face had lost its color within twenty seconds. Rapidly she pulled down her hair and let it fall to its full length. Now there were two possessions of the James Dillingham Youngs in which they both took a mighty pride. One was Jim's gold watch that had been his father's and grandfather's. The other was Della's hair. Had the Queen of Sheba lived in the flat across the air shaft, Della would have let her hair hang out the window some day to dry, just to depreciate Her Majesty's jewels and gifts. Had King Solomon been the janitor, with all his treasures piled up in the basement, Jim would have pulled out his watch every time he passed, just to see him pluck at his beard from envy. So now, Della's beautiful hair fell about her, rippling and shining like a cascade of brown waters. It reached below her knee and made itself almost a garment for her, and then she did it up again nervously and quickly. Once, she faltered for a minute and stood while a tear or two splashed on the worn red carpet. 
On went her old brown jacket, on went her old brown hat. With a whirl of skirts and with the brilliant sparkle still in her eyes, she fluttered out the door and down the stairs to the street. Where she stopped, the sign read, Mademoiselle Sophronie. Hair goods of all kinds. One flied up, Della ran, and collected herself, panting. Madam, large, too white, and chilly, hardly looked the Sophronie. Will you buy my hair? asked Della. I buy hair, said Madam. Take your hat off and let's have a sight at the look of it. Down rippled the brown cascade. Twenty dollars, said Madam, lifting the mass with a practiced hand. Give it to me quick said Della. Oh, and the next two hours tripped by on rosy wings. Forget the hashed metaphor. She was ransacking stores for Jim's present. She found it at last. It surely had been made for Jim and no one else. There was no other like it in any of the stores, and she had turned all of them inside out. It was a platinum fob chain simple and chaste in design, properly proclaiming its value by substance alone and not by meretricious ornamentation, as all good things should do. It was even worthy of the watch. As soon as she saw it, she knew that it must be Jim's. It was like him, quietness and value. The description applied to both, Twenty-one dollars they took from her for it, and she hurried home with eighty-seven cents. With that chain on his watch, Jim might be properly anxious about the time in any company. Grand as the watch was, he sometimes looked at it on the sly, on account of the old leather strap that he used in place of a chain. When Della reached home, her intoxication gave way to a little prudence and reason. She got out her curling irons and lighted the gas and went to work repairing the ravages made by generosity added to love. Which is always a tremendous task, dear friends. A mammoth task. Within forty minutes her head was covered with tiny, close-lying curls that made her look wonderfully like a truant schoolboy. She looked at her reflection in the mirror long, carefully, and critically. If Jim doesn't kill me, she said to herself, before he takes a second look at me, he'll say I look like a Coney Island chorus girl. But what could I do? Oh, what could I do with one dollar and eighty-seven cents? At seven o'clock, the coffee was made and the frying pan was on the back of the stove, hot and ready to cook the chops. Jim was never late. Della doubled the fob chain in her hand and sat on the corner of the table near the door that he always entered. Then she heard his step on the stair away down on the first flight, and she turned white for just a moment. She had a habit for saying silent little prayers about the simplest things, and now she whispered, Please, God, make him think I am still pretty. The door opened and Jim stepped in and closed it. He looked thin and very serious. Poor fellow, he was only twenty-two, and to be burdened with a family. He needed a new overcoat, and he was without gloves. Jim stopped inside the door, as immovable as a setter at the scent of a quail. His eyes were fixed upon Della, 
and there was an expression in them that she could not read, and it terrified her. It was not anger, nor surprise, nor disapproval, nor horror, nor any of the sentiments that she had been prepared for. He simply stared at her fixedly with that peculiar expression on his face. Della wriggled off the table and went for him. Jim, darling, she cried, don't look at me that way. I had my hair cut off and sold it because I couldn't have lived throughout Christmas without giving you a present. It'll grow out again. You won't mind, will you? I just had to do it. My hair grows awfully fast. Say Merry Christmas, Jim, and let's be happy. You don't know what a nice, what a nice, nice, beautiful gift I've got for you. You've cut off your your hair, asked Jim laboriously, as if he had not arrived at that patent fact yet, even after the hardest mental labor. Cut it off and sold it, said Della. Don't you like me just as well, anyhow? I'm me without my hair, aren't I? Jim looked about the room curiously. You say your hair is gone? he said with an air almost of idiocy. You needn't look for it, said Della. It's sold, I tell you, sold and gone too. It's Christmas Eve, boy, be good to me, for it went for you. Maybe the hairs of my head were numbered, she went on with sudden serious sweetness, but nobody could ever count my love for you. Shall I put the chops on, Jim? Out of his trance, Jim seemed quickly to wake. He enfolded his Della for ten seconds. Let us regard with the discreet scrutiny some inconsequential object in the other direction. Eight dollars a week, or a million a year. What is the difference? A mathematician or a wit would give you the wrong answer. The Magi brought valuable gifts, but that was not among them. This dark assertion will be illuminated later on. Jim drew a package from his overcoat pocket and threw it upon the table. Don't make any mistake, Dell, he said. About me, I, I don't think there's anything in the way of a haircut or, or a shave or a shampoo that could make me like my girl any less. But if you'll unwrap that package, you, you may see why you had me going a while at first. White fingers and nimble tore at the string and paper, and then an ecstatic scream of joy, and then, alas, a quick feminine change to hysterical tears and wails, necessitating the immediate employment of all the comforting powers of the lord of the flat. For there lay the combs, the set of combs side and back that Della had worshipped long in a Broadway window. Beautiful combs, pure tortoise shell and jeweled rims, just the shade to wear in the beautiful vanished hair. They were expensive combs, she knew and her heart had simply craved and yearned over them without the least hope of possession. And now they were hers, but the tresses that should have adorned the coveted adornments were gone. But she hugged them to her bosom, and at length she was able to look up with dim eyes and a smile and say, My hair grows so fast, Jim. And then Della leapt up like a singed cat and cried, Oh! Oh! Jim had not yet seen his beautiful present. She held it out to him eagerly upon her open palm. 
the dull precious metal seemed to flash with the reflection of her bright and ardent spirit. Isn't it a dandy, Jim? I hunted all over town to find it. You'll have to look at the time a hundred times a day now. Give me your watch. I want to see how it looks on it. Instead of obeying, Jim tumbled down on the couch, put his hands under the back of his head, and smiled. Dell, let's put our Christmas presents away and, and keep them a while. They're too nice to use just at present. I, I sold the watch to get the money to buy your combs. And, and now, now suppose you put the chops on. The Magi, as you know, were wise men, wonderfully wise men, who brought gifts to the babe in the manger. They invented the art of giving Christmas presents. Being wise, their gifts were no doubt wise ones, possibly bearing the privilege of exchange in case of duplication. And here I have lamely related to you the uneventful chronicle of two foolish children in a flat who most unwisely sacrificed for each other the greatest treasures of their house. But in a last word to the wise of these days, let it be said that of all who give gifts, these two were the wisest. Of all who give and receive gifts, such as they are the wisest. Everywhere they are the wisest. They are the Magi. Wishing a very Merry Christmas to you, Insomniacs. For the tragedy of cinema, I'm Zevin Odelberg, and this has been a special Christmas edition of Kinda Murdery Insomniac. Stories to stay awake by. Kinda Murdery Insomniac is created, researched, edited, produced, and hosted by Zevin Odelberg, with opening theme by Niall Madden and art by the Gin of Lang. Available now on all podcasting platforms. If you like the show, please subscribe, review, and tell your friends. You can find us on social media at Kinda Murdery or email at kindamurdery at gmail.com. Just can't 
get away from it all. It's everywhere. There's no thoughts of what other people might think. No consideration for others. Do you know how painful it is to hear him laughing all day and all night? My ears bleed from the singing of elves. Pathetic. Let me introduce myself. My name is Krupis. Have you ever heard of me? Of course not. Because I'm in your nightmares. Santa Puke here spoils you with gifts when you're good little boys and girls. Me, on the other hand, when you're naughty, you're mine. I will beat and whip you to the point of passing out. Merry Christmas indeed. <laughs> Wait, watch this. Oh, look, a love letter to Santa. I'm sure it's just more begging and handouts. Give me this and give me that. Oh, look here. This one's from James. What are you begging for this year, James? Oh, how sweet. He has a podcast. How cute. And he wants help putting a Christmas special together. Makes me want to puke. Well, guess what, James? Santa isn't the only one with magic. I'm going to send you something from my own private collection. It's from a pretty little vixen named Sarah Dionatus. Enjoy her, uh, Christmas story. <laughs> Hello, everybody. My name is Sarah Donatus, and I do not have a podcast home of my own, but I do a lot of work over on Triple H Media Productions with Tim Mullins. So if you want to hear my work, head on over and listen to any of his podcasts and you'll be sure to hear my voice somewhere. I want to thank The Tragedy of Cinema for sending their invitation for me to come and provide a little Christmas story for you all. I have been on this particular podcast. I was co-host with James Barnes once talking about my favorite movie. And uh, I am so honored to once again provide something for you. For this Christmas special. I do hope you enjoy it. I also want to extend a quick thank you to Tim Mullins. He provided all the editing of this little missive I have for you. And he also did some character work in here. So I hope you really enjoy this little story. My story is called The Expedition. December 1st. Dear Diary. Oh, wait. 
that doesn't sound scientific. Captain's Log. No, that's not it. Not everyone will appreciate my love for Star Trek. Scientific Log. Hmm. Yes, that's it. Scientific Log. First day. Myself and the crew, that consists of one captain and one hunky first mate, set off from the south of Chile early this morning. I am on my way to the South Pole to study and prove some cutting-edge findings that I have made, plus put some scientific experiments into real testing. I am excited. December 2nd. Scientific log... Second day. Sailing has been smooth. We are headed for the Straits, though, and I am not looking forward to that. I have my sea legs. I lived on a boat the year out of my doctorate program. I just wanted to get the heck away from a university classroom and overpowering professors. Bad memory removed, I'm happily taking pictures currently on the deck. It's beautiful out here, but cold. Glad we have a cutter. The only way to get through the ice. Very grateful for the reinforced hull. If not for that, we would be swimming. December 3rd. Scientific law, third day. Must say I'm grateful for the smooth water. I know that will change. The captain and first mate are cool enough. They think I'm crazy, though, for going on this expedition on my own. Why not? All those years I worked on group projects in school, did all the work, and then the team took credit. This is my project, damn it. Anyway, the crew. They are good guys. The first mate is an amazing chef. I might take him home with me once this is all said and done. December 4th. Damn, the straits. Not even there yet, but we'll be in the midst for two days. Things are already getting rough. I'll be back when I can. We have battened down the hatches. Ha! Who knew that was a line I would ever use in real context in a scientific log? December 12th. Well, this is the scientific log from day 12. The straits were hell. I have never seen all of my stomach contents and arguably some stuff from my childhood come out of me like that. I have sea legs, been on a 40-foot sailboat in 20-foot seas, and didn't get that sick. We were on it two days, but I needed rest and to gain back all that I have lost. I took the time of rest to add to my hypothesis and clean up my processes for the experiment. Tomorrow we will see land and prep for my debarking. I paid these guys to stay offshore until I am finished. I have a week, and that is it. I must be ready. Organized. December 13th, Scientific Log Day 13. Land ho! I was so happy to see land, or ice if it were. It was for the most part a relaxing trip, and the guys are professional to boot. I am glad I hired them, and I am glad I have some time on my own to study. December 14th, I disembarked early this morning, took the 16-foot Boston whaler to the shore. It was only 30 yards or so, so no real seas. Then I headed up to a known outpost for scientists and those stranded. A small, gray, metal, rounded building jetted out of the snow. 
After some digging to get to it, the door was found unlocked. Once inside, the air was thick with dust. It was quiet and barren. The first room was all science. A ham radio, some communication equipment, a desk, a wooden church pew, and some shelves. Once past there, walking back to the second room, a small jet out with a head. Saves me from going to the bathroom outside. And in the back room, a couple bunk beds. This will do. No power, but some boxes of candles were neatly placed in the office area. I have lived in much less. December 15th, Scientific Log, Day 15. Spent the day hiking around and seeing what is available. There is a mountain nearby with what looks to be a nice-sized cave. I will check it out tomorrow. All of my weather experiments are up and running. The other experiment is tomorrow as well. Long day, cold beans for dinner. I sure do miss that first mate. Wonder if he could come here for a good meal and maybe a little fun without strings. Ugh, I can't get distracted. December 16th, scientific log. My last experiment will run for the next two days. Then I will finish up and head home. I am looking for any issues with the snow caused by any pollution that makes it this far south. My equipment is new and I hope it works. After some hiking, I found a good place to secure the testing equipment and took some core samples around the site. I didn't get to the cave. Tomorrow, for sure. December 17th, Scientific Log. I am headed to the cave. Wish me luck. <laughs> a diary. A diary cannot wish me luck. But, wish me luck anyways. I shall record my findings in the field. I would hate to die without a good story as to why I died. December 17th, Scientific Log, Supplemental. I have always wanted to say that. I hiked the better part of the day. I had to hunker down for a bit as a snow squall blew up out of nowhere, took advantage of the time to journal in my private diary and eat some food. Jerk it is, for the third day. It got late. This cave is much farther than I anticipated. Glad I brought a knapsack. I dug out a small shelter and slept in the field. December 18th. Scientific log. Woke early. Love that knapsack. Kept me relatively warm. Hmm. Would have been better with a certain first mate cuddled with me. Ugh. My one-track mind. Ate another piece of jerky. A foodstuff I wish to never see again as long as I live. And headed for the cave. On the way, I picked up my equipment and placed it in my pack. One day early, but these snowstorms might swallow them up, never to be found again, even with GPS trackers on them. I hiked for a few hours. A storm is brewing, and it is getting really dark, which is good, because the darkness gave me cover as I approached the mouth of the cave. I approached with caution, and then... December 19th, scientific log. It's midnight, and I'm writing this in hiding. A voice log would give me away. If it hadn't happened to me, I would not believe it. 
I must get home. I must leave this place. Tomorrow, I haul ass to the shore, and I am out. Thank God I have pictures proving my experience. This is the location where hell exists, and I am not safe where I am. If it were not so dark and stormy out, I would pack up and leave now. There are little comms with the ship. In fact, I have to be on shore to reach the captain via walkie-talkie. On the 18th, I woke early, packed up my small knapsack. When I left the scientific shelter, I had grabbed my trusty 9mm and some extra ammo and a good amount of jerky, unfortunately, and filtered water. So happy I brought all those provisions. I woke in the field, then hiked a bit and arrived at the cave. There was a very warm glow emanating from the cave, which was odd. The mouth of the cave was covered in thick ice, like warmth from inside, melted the snow, and it refroze. I heard voices and hid behind a large boulder. I watched for a while, and then I saw the first one. He was maybe three feet tall and all man. He had a very bushy beard, chiseled features, a pointy red hat that covered his very thick blonde hair, and the muscles on his body were noticeable even through the red wool coat and green wool pants. His boots were a thick black wool and had a point on the toe. He looked just like a Santa elf. Isn't he on the wrong end of the earth? Suddenly, a stream of these small, statured men came marching out of the cave, not angry, not happy, just, well, just. They were now in a huddle of sorts, talking about something. The concerned looks on their faces told me it was something serious. I could not believe my eyes. Then, there was a rumble. It started out slow and quiet at first, then it got louder and stronger. The men seemed to fear whatever this is and spun around to face the mouth of the cave, then bowed deeply, remaining in that pose, not moving. The mouth of the cave went from a warm glow to a dark red, and steam hissed out into the cold air, causing a blinding cloud. I got a strong smell of sulfur. It was so intoxicating, I felt instantly sick. And then, he emerged. My eyes naturally looked to the ground, so the first thing I saw were two black hooves. Large, thick, black hooves with the legs of what looked to be a mix between a horse and an elk. I could not see a tail, for the area was covered by a long black wool cape that draped his body. The dark black shiny fur on him went from his hooves to the top part of his waist, slowly diminishing to reveal the abdomen and chest of a very muscular man with inky black skin. His neck was very long, and what sat upon it defies description. His face, for lack of a better term, was a mix between a man, a goat, a dog, and a demon. His chin was adorned with a broken and tattered black beard, and the teeth in his head were a brilliant white and sharpened, as though he was made to rip flesh off of the bones of other beasts. 
His flat, leathery nose was rather nondescript against the strength of his other features. The most striking thing about him was his eyes. They glowed a brilliant red and oddly actually illuminated whatever he focused on. The large, black, undulating horns atop his head were flanked by ears the likes of any living thing on this earth I have never seen. The closest thing I can find to describe his ears is a mix of goat and horse, not covered in fur, but leathery, and could move independently. I'm waiting for whatever noise is being done. He was all of six feet tall, towering over the men, to which he seemed to take great joy in their fear. He was such a vast contrast to the small, muscular men trembling before him, and if I didn't know better, I would guess this beast before me was Satan himself. When he approached them, I was able to see his arms, those of a man, extremely muscular, with human hands, but his arms grew a thick layer of fur, not manlike at all. He walked up to the men, his breathing sounded like growling, and the men shuddered in fear. This beast started pacing back and forth in the area of the mouth of the cave, while the men bowed. When he exhaled, it was a wheezy breath through his nose, and great plumes of mist formed around his head. He stopped, as if to catch his thoughts, and then, in a booming voice, he began to talk. Bring me my basket and my whip. Now, peasants, get my switch. I have to meet with the boss man in 24 hours. Where are my horses and chariots? Bring them at once or die. I noticed the men running like scared little children. This beast seemed to take great joy in their suffering. He let out a laugh and then I saw it. A grossly dark, deep blood-red tongue that stretched out of his mouth for what seemed like ten feet. It was thick by the mouth and tapered to a point of sorts at the end. The very tip of the tongue split like a serpent's. It dripped with saliva and moved with a dexterity the likes I have never seen before. Where are my peasants? I gave you orders! They quickly brought his items, a large wicker basket, so large it could easily fit three of those men inside, that had a leather strap that he slung over his shoulder. In that basket, he placed a long black leather whip, sticks of varying sizes, and what looked to be switches from a willow tree. Another group of small men brought forth two beautiful black horses with glowing red eyes who were bridled to a chariot made of what looked to be black leather. Good. I'm ready. 
At this time, another man brought him a long chain. It was shiny and silver, and with great strife on his face, the monster placed it on his shoulders. This damn thing! This binds me to earth and separates me from the believers. If only I can get my hands on them and... He lifted up one of the men standing nearest to him with his serpentine tongue, raised him above his head, and with his bare hands tore him in two, throwing his lifeless body to the ground. I stifled a scream. If it wasn't so impossible to believe, I would say there was a human nearby. I have no more time. Clean him up and let this be a lesson to you. Don't cross me. Where's my staff? The men, very visibly shaken, ran into the cave and quickly returned with what I can only describe as the most hideous thing I have ever seen. On a thick branch of undulated, twisted wood sat a head, a head of what used to be something living, I suppose. The hair on its head was mostly gone, aside from patches of gnarled knots. The face was drawn and rotting. The skin that was left seemed to be leaking a thick yellow oil from its decomposing pores that collected on what used to be its chin. It had inky black eyes that were shrunk in their sockets that audibly rattled when the staff was moved. The teeth that did remain in the head barely held on to the skull by the flesh that remained. The neck was jagged, and what seemed to be sinew and muscle dangled down and remained rigid. Good. I must be on my way. The big man is waiting, and I have so many children and adults to whip from being bad. It brings me such With a loud ruckus, he spun around, hopped on his chariot, and to my amazement, he, by the direction of the horses, flew into the sky. One day, Christmas will be mine, and all believers will be At this point, the small men ran back into the cave and hid. It was my time to escape. I ran like the wind, trying not to fall in the deep snow and into deep ice fractures. I didn't look back for fear I would be followed. I ran like the wind. I got to the beach and radioed for the men to get ready. I told them, they have no choice. We sail tonight. Once on board, I sat and calmed my nerves. I spoke not a word to the crew about my situation, because I realized it would not be believed. Once able to gather my thoughts, it hit me. What I saw was... Krampus. He lives! Did you enjoy one of my top favorite stories? 
before you answer that, you best think twice about your answer. I have no problem making an extra trip this year. It feels so good to finally be in charge. To have the power. Not the power to spread light and, oh, cheer. But to spread the darkness and fear. The way things are supposed to be. So, James. Did you like that last story I sent you? Did it scare you? Let me guess. You wanted some Christmas story like that action-packed Christmas movie, didn't you? Oh, what was that called? Hmm. Oh, oh yeah. Die Hard. Well, guess what? Die Hard is not a Christmas movie. It's full of violence and evil. The way I like it. Wait. Now that I'm in charge, that would make the perfect Christmas movie. <laughs> Let's see Hallmark play that one. Violence and evil, they never die. They never die. Now, why does that sound familiar? Oh, wait there. It sounds like I have something to take care of. Grumpus, you old goat. What do you think you're doing? What does it look like, brother? I'm taking over. You'll never get away with this. Where are my elves? Hiding. Like good little children do when evil is around. And you'll find out soon enough that evil never wins. And you'll soon find out that evil never dies. Wait, that's it. I knew that sounded familiar. James, here's your next gift from old Saint Grumpus. What? 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 What are you doing? Who are you talking to? God, you talk too much. New show coming your way, James. Everybody, I'm Brett here with Carl. What's up? Hello, Carl? everybody. How are you doing tonight? And uh, we are the Evil Never Dies podcast. Uh, I just wanted to thank Jimbo, Kyle, and Terrence for letting us be a part of their Christmas special this year. And uh, we're going to do a top five heavy metal Christmas songs for you. Uh, I guess that means I can't put you're a mean one, Mr. Grinch, on the list. 
uh, unless there's a metal version of it, then I guess you could. Yeah, there is, but it's not that good of a version. So we won't <laughs> add that to the list, but it should be. All right. Number five. Who do you got for number five, Carl? Well, after much research, I went ahead and decided to go with I'll Be Home for Christmas from the Twisted Christmas, Twisted Sister album they did a, several years ago. Uh, it's a duet with Dee Snyder and Lita Ford. All right. All right. I hear you there. It's a good song from that album. It's pretty serious. Most of that album is sort of cheesy, but that they took that song real serious and did a good job with it. All right. Cool uh number five i have the band venom black christmas oh wow they're like the original black metal band man they, they were the gods of black metal yes yeah and that's off the metal punk album in uh 2009 yeah that's a good pick yeah they were they were they were hard man oh yeah venom's hardcore to the bone all right, number four. Who do you got for number four? Well, this is sort of an interesting choice. I'm sure everybody remembers Spinal Tap. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, Spinal Tap the, did a Christmas song. They actually did called Christmas with the Devil. Really? And it's actually sort of seriously done, and it's it's c- kind of evil sounding. They've got it's pretty. The lyrics are pretty dark and demented for them. Wow. So, I'll have to check that out for sure. I actually, I enjoy playing that song. It kind of gives people a, and they'll look like, what in the world is that? So that's sort of my fun slash parody, but not really parody song. I've got a pretty serious list on for Christmas. Well, speaking of parody fun songs, my number four is ACDC mistress for Christmas. Oh, goodness. <laughs> <laughs> off, off the Razor's Edge album uh, in 1990. I used to play that song on the radio like four times a day on the radio station up in Illinois, man, where I'm from. Yeah. It's a fun song for sure. It, yeah, it is. It's right up there with Grandma Got Run Over by a Reindeer. Yeah. As far as I'm concerned. So, all right. Number three. Who do you got for number three? Number three, this is an interesting choice, but it's a definite for me. It's Manowar. And they actually do a version of Silent Night. Really? And it is actually done very, very seriously and very well. Is it hard or is it? It's more kind of opera type because, you know, he can sing like opera music. So it's definitely got a little bit of metal to it, but it's, it's really very 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 well done and it's actually a song i would play christmas day if i was if somebody told me, play you a christmas song you could play <laughs> it for everybody and n- nobody would ever know that this is a man of war you know the kings of metal it's it's a good song you had to give it a listen okay for number three i got rob halford deck the halls it's off the uh, celestial album in uh, 2019 yeah, he's got two of those albums out, I believe. Yeah, the other one ain't as good as this one though. I like this one way better. This it's it's way it's it's really hard. So, but he does a good job. It's still you know. Yeah, it's still Rob Alford. It just his voice just doesn't seem Christmassy to me. 
like Eric Adams from Man of War. He, he can do Christmas better. Yeah, yeah. All right, I'll give you that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, number two, who do you got for two? Number two, and it took a while to figure it out, but of course I got to pick Trans-Siberian Orchestra. And in this case, this is from their third Christmas album. And this song is called The Lost Christmas Eve. It's a pretty hard song, pretty heavy song, and it's pretty dark and depressing, the lyrics. Huh. But, but, um, well, didn't I... go with one of their uh, instrumentals, which is usually what I like from them. But, okay. The Lost Christmas Eve. All right. My number two is, uh, Dio, God Rest You Merry Gentlemen. Now that's a good song. Yes, it is. That had, uh, Rudy Sarzo playing bass, Tony Omi playing guitar, and uh, Simon Wright playing drums. Yeah, that was that was uh, good. And uh, it's on the uh, "We Wish You a Very Metal Christmas" compilation album that came out right before Ronnie died. Yeah, Jeff Tate, twenty ten. Yeah, there's Jeff a bunch. There's a a bunch yeah, there's a bunch of people. Ripper Owens has got a song on there, I think, too. And it, it's not that bad of not that bad of a metal Christmas album. So, all right, up to big number one. Who do you got for number one, Carl? Oh, there's no doubt about it, because this song changed the world really for Christmas and metal and rock. It comes from the 1995 album called dead winter dead from sabotage sabotage and, and the song is called christmas eve sarajevo sarajevo 1224 although usually it's just called christmas eve yeah you it's told me about that song i listened to it that's uh it's that's a really good instrumental for sure yeah it's an instrumental it's short but it um it got it still gets played on the radio every year and i'm talking about on the the pop radio channels. It's probably the most played rock metal song. Maybe that's where I've heard that before. Mainstream that that you would ever. I mean, I no one day. It, I had it, it did on sound the, really familiar for sure when I listened. It's to been it. played over and over and over, but it is still a sabotage song and makes me very proud. And like I said on our podcast during Christmas, I'm going to tell the story of sabotage and how they became the Christmas godfathers of rock and metal and symphonic rock, whatever yeah, you want to call I'm gonna it. Let you take the reins on that one too. So yes, something to look forward to. All righty. For my number one typo negative red water <laughs> Christmas morning and morning is spelled M O U R I N G. Yes, it is. And that's off the October rust album from 1996. I don't know. I just love that song, dude. Just, it's, I think typo's number one on every list you've done so far. I, I've got to say, I like typo, man. Can't can't deny him, man. Nope, that you can't. So, Peter was a genius. Yes, he was. Yes, he was. All right, everybody. Well, that's our top five metal Christmas songs. Uh, if you like what you heard, give us a listen. We're available on all platforms. Uh, check out the website. 
uh, www.evilneverdiespod.com. Uh, social media, Evil Never Dies. Just search that. We're on social media, and uh, that's about it. You got anything for it to say, Carl? Just uh, Merry Christmas, and thanks for letting us uh, do this list. Yep. Merry Christmas, everybody. We hope you liked it. And remember to stay evil.
I know those two quite well. <laughs> I don't think they've ever been on the nice list. It seems like I have to visit them every year. Wait. I actually do remember those two. Those are the two freaks who wait on me every year. And they provide their own whips. Oh, sick little freaks. Now what? What? I can't understand you. Fine. What? I'm hungry. Of course you are. Look at you. You're out of shape. You sit here all day eating and playing with elves. When was the last time you left the shop and actually did something? I get sick if I don't eat. Just a few cookies. Please? Fine. I don't want you going back to mom and whining. Oh, thank you. Where are they? Just over there. On my desk. Talk about these cookies? Yes, please. Bring them to me. Here. Thank you, Crumpus. Yeah, whatever. James. I just thought of another podcast you just might like. His stories have an evil twist to them. The guy's not quite right, if you know what I mean. I suppose that's why I like him so much. I'm sending you a little story from Triple H Media. Good luck sleeping after listening to some of his, uh, creepy work. purpose and block me out. <laughs> Mary! Mary? Mary? What is that dog barking at? Mary! Stop all that noise! Mary! Come here, you little... No. Mary? Mary!
Like she was no longer here. Did I? I apologize. I must have misspoken. Please, tell me more about your wife. What do you want to know? Tell me about her smile. Oh, that smile. She was always smiling. She has lips as red as roses and as sweet as apple pie. Her smile could and did light up every room she was in. She had a smile that most people couldn't help but smile back. I'm telling you, she's a real life angel. If anyone on this earth was an angel, it was my sweet Mary. Angels do come in two forms, you know. What do you mean? They come in light and they come in dark. Like black and white? Not skin color, old man. I'm sorry, I still don't understand what you mean. Angels of light, like your sweet Mary. Then there's angels of dark, like... Nighttime? Hmm, yes. Light nighttime. Do you really think she's an angel of light? She's whatever you make her to be. Then she's an angel of light for sure. Someone with such a big heart and kind soul. She was always setting out to help people. And how did that make you feel? It made me proud. Happy. But did it? Really? Yes, it did. Why would it make me feel any different? Be honest with yourself. There were times that it wasn't so... happy, was it? No, I mean... once in a while it was annoying and ruined a few of our plans, but... I accepted it because that's who she is. You really must stop lying to yourself. It was a burden on you and your family. No. No, it wasn't. Yes, it was. How many times did you miss dates with your wife because she found someone more important to spend her time with? It, it, it wasn't like that at all. How many hours were wasted away from you and the kids because she had more important places to be? You have it all wrong. She loves me and the children. Does she? Are you sure about that? Yes, very much so. Then you need to open your eyes because her love has got you blind to the truth. What kind of doctor are you? Who are you? Tell me, how much money did her kindness cost you? How many bills didn't get met because she always found somebody who needed it more? We missed a few bills, yes, but it always worked out. If she really loved you, 
If she really cared about others, then why did she ignore her own family? She didn't ignore us. Tell me, old man. When she dies tonight, what will you miss the most? You said she wasn't going to die. That depends on you. But tell me, what will you miss the most about your wife? Her embrace. Well, I didn't see that coming. Why her embrace, old man? It's the only thing that made me feel safe and loved. She couldn't hold me tight, but it was enough to let me know I was her world. I would always hug her back in hopes. In hopes that it made her feel the same way. Feelings can easily deceive and lie to you. It will always fill you with false hope and security. But... The strongest one of them all is love. Love. Love can make you blind. Now you're seeing the truth. But it's also strong enough to get you through even the toughest of times. And believe you me, it got us through some very tough times. Yes, times that she created. Look deep. Throughout your 50 plus years, how many of those hardships were caused by her looking out for others? Why are you doing this? Answer the question. How many times did she leave you alone to take care of the problems that she created at home? How many times did you have to dry teary eyes because your children miss their mother? No, it's how many? More than I would like to admit, all right? Is that what you want to hear? That's it. Tell me how you feel. All those times I went to bed alone. That's right, and why? Because she was too busy taking care of other people. How many meals did you all have without your wife, without their mother? <sighs> Too many. That's right. Too many to count because it happened so frequently, right? Yeah. She ignored her own family, her own husband for people she didn't know. She took advantage of you. Do you know what today is? Thursday. The date. December 24th. Oh, it's Christmas Eve. That's right. Even on the day of giving, she's found a way to get out of spending the day with you. No. I don't think she'd do something like this on purpose, even if she wanted to. How did you know for sure? She's taken so much from you already. 
Why not take this too? You know deep inside, I'm right. And you know deep inside who I am. You're not the doctor, are you? No. Earlier, I said there were two types of angels. The angel of light and the angel of darkness. <laughs> so you have come to take her away tonight? No, I haven't. So she'll live then? I didn't say that either. Exactly. Who are you? You know me just as well as you know yourself. But I've never seen you before. I don't know you. You're right. You haven't seen me, but you do know me. You're right. I do know you. Say it. I want to hear you say it. Who am I, old man? You. You are my anger. Go on. You are my regrets, my doubts. And? You are my sadness and my loneliness. Say it. Who am I? You are my inner being. You are me. <laughs> I am everything you push back. All your feelings, all your stress, everything you refuse to deal with because your sweet Mary didn't want you. So what do we do now? I told you. I'm not here to take your wife away. But I also said her death tonight will be up to you. So it's my choice if she lives or dies. Where did you go? Where, where did he go? I'm here. I'm always here. So what do I do? What do I do? I love you, my sweet love. Merry Christmas. Thank you for listening to the Triple H Media Dark Christmas episode. We would like to thank James for the invitation again this year. 
If you enjoyed this audio drama, please subscribe to Hillbilly Horror House on your favorite podcast player. You can also visit our website at www.hhhmedia.net. I'm Tim Mullinson. Merry Christmas. the eggnog please and thank you i swear what did your wife see in you i always knew cindy was desperate you leave mrs claus out of this <sighs> i don't even have the energy right now to even bother here drink up needy claws thank you and you know there is a good man in you somewhere shut up Sit there and eat your cookies and drink your eggnog. Maybe I can find a doll for you to play with. Well, will you look at the time? It's time for me to go spread the holiday darkness. <laughs> oh, James. I nearly forgot about you. I'm tired of playing Santa, so... Here's the last show to help the little pot crap Christmas episode. It's called Middle Age and Creeped Out. If you ask me, most middle aged men are a little creepy anyway, so whatever. Here it is. Hello, tragedy of cinema listeners. Get ready for some very creepy Christmas stories. Brought to you by Todd, Sean, and Nate of the Middle Aged and Creeped Out Podcast. Ho, ho, ho. Hello there, creepies. Nate is your sound engineer, and we are your hosts, Todd and Sean. And we are, in fact, Middle Aged and Creeped Out. Sean and Nate, what's going on, guys? Nothing too much, brother. How you doing? I'm doing great, Nate. Oh, not a whole lot. We're, uh... Doing this little Christmas special. Very excited. Uh, Mr. Jimbo invited us to be on this uh, Christmas, I think it's the second annual Christmas special, if I'm if I'm uh, correct. Um, I think last year he said it went 
awesomely. So he That's thought he very cool. This is yeah. something different for us. Yeah. So I was very honored that he, uh, he asked if we wanted to do it. I know he's got other podcasters uh, in on it, and some some a lot of my I recognize, and then some I don't. But I'll obviously check them out too. But uh, so we want to thank Jimbo, Kyle, and Terrence. That uh, they are the hosts of the Tragedy of Cinema podcast. Um, so yeah, very cool for for uh, asking us to be on this Christmas special. We're so, very glad to be here. Yeah. So thanks, guys. Um, so yeah, before we start, I'm gonna get I'm gonna have Sean introduce what we're gonna talk about tonight. We are gonna talk about creepy Christmas stories. Yeah, that's our thing, right? Ooh. That is our thing. <laughs> and we haven't. Yeah. So now we're getting to that season. <laughs> so it's about that time. Tis the season to be I, creepy. I never thought of looking into this. You didn't, no. as far as the uh, the Christmas creeps. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I call it Creepmas. Creepmas. <laughs> Merry Creepmas. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. So I hope uh, their listeners uh, enjoy these these Christmas stories that we picked out. So um, yeah, I'll. Uh, so who who we got starting here? I think we're starting with you. Me. I got it. So big the daddy. one, the big daddy. All right. So the one I chose. I hope I am pronouncing it correctly. Uh, this, this creature or entity is called Percta, P-E-R-C-H-T-A. I'm going to go with that. So Percta. And per- when I, when I re- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so when I read this, I'm like, yep, this is the one I'm choosing. So here we go. This Celtic goddess is a hardcore Santa Claus and not in the fun way. She came up in the Alpine regions around the Middle Ages as sort of traditions police. She made sure culture, uh, cultural taboos didn't get tabooed. During the 12 days of Christmas, in parentheses, and especially on the 12th night, because she procrastinates like a college student and crams everything in at the last minute, uh, she would roam the frozen countryside and sneak into people's homes. That's mm. always good. Uh, that's a, that's a great you story. had me at hardcore, honestly. Hardcore, right. <laughs> that's what Santa does, right? <laughs> that's, uh, well, yeah. And it said true and creepy. hardcore Santa Claus type, yeah. just not in a good way. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and, and, and just by the start of this, I'm like, yeah, it's not starting out well. Uh, says here, if the children and servants of a house had behaved and worked hard all year, she might give them a small silver coin, hiding it in a shoe or a pail. But if they were on the naughty list, oh boy, Perkta, which, <clears throat> here we go, Perkta slit their bellies open, Ooh. she would remove all of their guts and stuff the body with straw and pebbles. Yikes. To get this treatment, you don't have to do much. Oh, that's great. Wow. <laughs> yeah says girls who hadn't spun all their flax or wool that year would become Christmas straw dolls. Or even if someone ate something on their day of feast, other than the traditional foods of fish and gruel. So, okay. yeah, so na- gruel. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so now it says, so now you know everyone was up for grabs. So it didn't sound like you had to do a whole lot to get uh, that, that awful treatment. Yeah, it seems like the awful treatment was more often than a coin. Oh, man. <laughs> and I'm thinking, is that an even trade? Like, okay, a coin's nice, but then that gone, the, the consequences of not being good or doing what you're supposed to, you get <laughs> your belly slid open and I think I'll pass straw and pebbles. That, yeah. yeah, It's got to be a little bit more on the positive side, like maybe a few more coins. I don't, yeah. I don't know. What do you I'm, think? I'm expecting like a spa treatment, and that is not like the kind of spa treatment that you'd want. Yeah. I, so to say hardcore Santa Claus, I think is an under. Mm-hmm. That's an underestimate, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so there you go, Perkta. I I've, I had never heard of I this. I have never heard of that ever. Yeah, That's yeah. First for me. Yeah, and I and I again, I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly. But um, at this point, whatever the pronunciation is, pronunciation is, it's uh, very I creepy. Like pr- no pronunciation is pronunciation. Correct. Yeah, <laughs> good better. grief. Uh, I like it. And what it show this picture? I'll show you guys. I uh, know listeners obviously won't 
Yeah, oh, we'll yeah. see. But oh, that's, you got to look up Perk to Amp. Yeah, look this creature up. It's a uh, dagger and all. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, the poor little kids were sitting there like, oh, boy. Mm. And then there's some little demon guy. I don't know, maybe the assistant <laughs> sidekick. <laughs> assistant to the Perk to He kind of looks wor- worse wow. than she does. So, yeah. So, anyway, there Nothing you go. says Merry Christmas like that. Oh. So, Mr. Sean, right, you well, got one? I'm going to take us into something that's just as dark, if not darker, okay. and that is who is Krampus? So we're trying to explain this horrific Christmas beast, which is really setting the mood, right? Mm-hmm. So Santa's got some competition, a terrifying Christmas devil named Krampus, which is catching on uh, worldwide, which has been. Um, when listening to the radio in December, it's unlikely to hear holiday songs singing the praises of Krampus. I don't know what they're talking about. I hear it all the time. Oh, yeah. A half goat, half demon, horrific beast who literally beats people into being nice and not <laughs> naughty. That's disturbing. Uh, Krampus isn't exactly the stuff of dreams. Bearing horns, dark hair, fangs, and a long tongue, the anti-St. Nicholas comes with a chain and bells that he lashes lashes about, along with a bundle of birch sticks meant to swat naughty children. He then hauls the bad kids down to the underworld. You better watch out. In Catholicism, St. Nicholas is the patron saint of children. His saint's day falls in early December, which helpers or helps strengthen his association with the Yuletide season. Many European cultures not only welcome the kindly man as a figure of generosity and benevolence to reward the good, but they also feared his menacing counterparts who punished the bad. So parts of Germany and Austria dread the beastly Krampus, while other Germanic regions have uh, Bell's Nickel and... Whew, here we go. Uh, niched rupture. <laughs> easy for you to but say. Easy for me to say. Um, look that up, right? Black bearded men who carry switches to beat children. France has Hans Trap and Perifertard. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not making that up. Uh, some of these I don't hel- see how you could. I'm not. <laughs> some of these helpers, later. such as Schwarte Piet. In the Netherlands, have attracted reach the recent controversy. I'm going to stop right there. I'm glad you picked that one. Oh, wow. Krampus's name is derived from the German word Krampen, meaning claw, and is said Ooh. to be the son of hell in Norse mythology. The legendary beast also shares characteristics with other scary demonic creatures in Greek mythology, including satyrs and fauns. The legend is part of the centuries-old Christmas tradition in Germany, uh, where Christmas, basically the whole christmas idea kind of started mm-hmm. right um so <laughs> this is uh they call him also saint nick's evil twin so with horns hooves and mushu's tongue thing whatever that means uh so he's got like a, a, ton, a, a, a long tongue coming out most people think this guy lives in germany but he's also in austria croatia uh the czech republic hungary slovenia and northern italy so he gets around while St. Nicholas focuses only on the good children, Krampus dedicates his attention to the less goody-two-shoed. Tamer versions of Krampus have him doing uh, nothing more than scaring kids and giving them lumps of coal, while their friends get candy from St. Nicholas. Sometimes he whips them into shape with a birch, which we talked about before. The more hardcore, here comes hardcore again, version has him with a sack or basket to kidnap children. Depen- that's what I've seen. Yeah, yeah that's, that's so scary. Depending yeah. on who's telling the story... Krampus either eats them, drowns them, or sends them straight to hell. Those mm. Europeans do not mess around. <laughs> uh, no. And again, they had us at hardcore. Yeah. <laughs> Some serious business. Yeah. There's yeah. a pretty good movie uh, about Krampus. Mm-hmm. I've not seen yeah. it. Yeah, five oh, or six yeah. years ago. It's yeah. good. It's, yeah, it's, it's pretty good. I haven't yeah. seen it. It's yeah. pretty creepy. 
Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'll get talking about the that. long tongue. I, I'm wondering if it's Gene Simmons. Maybe yeah, right. Guess. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Shout it. Gene Shout it out Krampus. loud. Right? Gene Krampus. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a, that's a legend I've always been interested in. And and they always say like yeah, Santa Claus and Krampus are kind of working together. Where you know Santa doesn't. <laughs> it's he's not going to save you. It's the yin and he's yang, go, hey, right? You you acted this way, so yeah. you got him. You know the yin and yang of Christmas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, we're oh. stuck with them. So we started off creepy, staying super duper creepy over yeah. here, and then where the heck oh, is Nate going to take so us? So Nate, you going to enlighten a little bit, lighten it up? Or no, I'm, I'm digging the hole deeper. <laughs> oh no! Oh boy, here <laughs> we go. For three. Oh yeah. Strap in. Yeah, I, I read this one. I was like, "Yep, I got to do this one." Wait, I got to ask: Is this hardcore? So, oh, it's super <laughs> hardcore. Okay. Awesome. There we go. <clears throat> yeah, this is uh, called the the Christmas tree decorations. Okay. Sounds so, innocent. Yeah, you know. very innocent. Right? Yeah, so uh, the, the question is, what's Christmas without a little murder? Well, there you go. That changes <sighs> it. Here we go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. A girl named Juliet is home alone as she lives with her single mother, who's a nurse taking the night shift. Juliet just finished decorating the Christmas tree when there's a scratching at the door to her apartment. When she looks through the peephole, she sees a man dressed in a dirty Santa Claus suit. It's Santa Claus, she says. Juliet may be only 11 years old, but she's not an idiot. She refuses to open the door and threatens to call the police when he doesn't leave. His solution to this little dilemma, an axe. Juliet hides in the closet while he busts down the door. When he finds her, she manages to stab him in the eye with a coat hanger, and it all goes downhill from there. This sounds like Michael Myers. Wait a minute. I was going to say, not my boy Michael. (laughs) Juliet's mom finally manages to come home around midnight. She finds the door busted open and the Christmas tree decorated with bits of Juliet. That's not good. That's disturbing. <laughs> that is disturbing. Yeah, very creepy. And hardcore. And, ha- and hardcore. <laughs> Throw the hardcore in there. Oh, I didn't man. even expect that, to be honest with you. Yeah. I knew it was something. Oh, gosh. Yeah, that was, that's a wild ride right there. Not good. <laughs> not good. <laughs> Merry Christmas. <It's>, uh, <laughs> yeah, we, hey! We took it down, down, down. <laughs> we wish. We, uh, Those, uh, so. The darker side of Christmas. Yeah. Ooh. You know, a lot of people don't realize that uh, the tradition of Christmas was back in the early 1900s, 1800s, and all that. So, uh, p- people sat around the Christmas tree and telling ghost stories mm-hmm. and creepy yeah. stories. Yeah, that's very true. I had no idea, not, you know, until just a little bit ago that uh, that was a tradition. So, well, I, think I mean, it's something just, I didn't do, but... We just had we? ours. Yeah, <laughs> I, I guess so, yeah. Charles Dickens, that's what his, his you know, he wrote uh, the one of the most well-known ghost stories, and it's a Christmas story, right? Yeah, so. yeah. Wait a minute, mm-hmm. I've never heard of it. What is it? You, uh-huh, yeah. <laughs> I was like doing that. <laughs> no, but I, I honestly, until Carol. just a couple of years ago, I had no idea that was a tradition that, that they used to do, yeah, so to cool? share those weird, creepy, yeah. Mm-hmm. And like Nate said, we kind of did that, I think. <laughs> oh, yeah. They say Charles Dickens with the Christmas Carol that he actually shaped a lot of the traditions that we have today, you know, that those were kind of up and coming during that time, but it right. really solidified. So I yeah. think that's kind of cool. Well, you got the, you know, the, the, the ghosts. And Thank you, Chucky D. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's Chuck what Todd D. would call him. I just know he would. <laughs> what, what? <laughs> what, what? Oh, man. So I hope you guys like those stories. I, uh, yeah, we just chose those. And um, even though I had heard of Krampus, I didn't know what, 
Gave know, a little bit more. I would say light on the subject, but it's a little no, more darkness. No, on I wouldn't the say that. And then yeah. and when Nate and his eyes lit up, he goes, "I got a murder one." I'm like, "Oh boy, <laughs> murder!" He was Christmas. I all right, all right. Yeah. And I've got some crazy beast woman that's cutting up uh, kids' bellies. So, in some weird way, this has been fun. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think I think they should enjoy it. <laughs> to be honest with you, and play it on Christmas Day. You're welcome, right? Yeah. So, um, so anyway, yeah. Again, uh, guys, I hope you enjoyed those creepy Christmas stories. And I'm going to have uh, my partner Sean here. Tell you guys uh, how you can follow us and listen. Well, you can follow us with um, on any kind of social media, uh, Facebook, Instagram, and we are TikTokers. We yeah. like to put that out there. Um, and we have a uh, email uh, address. It's makopodcast at gmail.com. We are really looking to be, you know, we connect through email. I think people still use email somewhat. Um, <laughs> so we're always looking for new stories, um, experiences, and just connecting with our podcast. Um, and we are on any major listening platform um, out there for podcasts. Yeah. If it's out there, we're probably on it. Yeah, and if you like what you hear, this is just a little bit of a uh, an idea of what we do. But you know, just a little taste. Yeah, but we usually, you know, we we do our uh, podcast. We do like a full episode uh, every week. Usually drops on a Wednesday night, if not usually Thursday morning. And then we have middle aged minis that drop every Saturday afternoon at what three o'clock. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, so check us out. Um, like Sean said, you can find us anyway and every way to, to listen we'd love for you guys to join our uh, social media accounts we're become a creepy become a creepy that's right you're you're your official creepy once you join um yeah ratings and reviews we, we'd appreciate that and then like i said if you like what you hear share the word friends family and co-workers we'll, we'll take uh any more listeners that we can get so i uh you sound desperate I am desperate. <laughs> <laughs> desperate to keep doing no, this. No, no, no. I just <laughs> can't have enough listeners and, and, and uh, people. Join. Yeah, and, and I will say we are big big advocates of mental health. So yes. that's something yep. we take serious. Um, so That's what we're desperate about. We're desperate to help, right? Yes, and sometimes I'm desperate for help. Yeah. So anyway, um, yeah. So, Nate, what do you think, man? That's a tragedy we got in this discussion. Ooh. Ooh, I like it. That's a wrap. That's a wrap. When Nate says that, it is it. Um, yeah, so Sean, Nate, and I want to thank, again, we want to thank you, Jimbo, Kyle, and Terrence for inviting us to be a part of your uh, second annual Christmas special. We thank had you, a blast. Thank you, Yeah, and uh, we, we love your podcast. You guys do a great job. And, uh, and all I have to say is until next time, Creepies, Nate is your sound engineer. We are your hosts, Todd and Sean, and we are middle-aged and creeped out. Keep it creepy. So, you see, old man, I have my fans, too. (laughs) What do you have to say about that? I do have something to say if you wish to hear it. Why not? Go ahead. No. You have to open the door first. Isn't that ironic? You never struck me as the type to be afraid of the dark. Spill, Nick. Let's hear what you have to say. Duck. Goose. Ho 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 ho. No. Duck. 
I prefer a ranger if you don't mind. Suit yourself. Don't say I didn't warn you. Hey, buddy. What? Ow, you stupid little... What? I warned you. Now! There now. That should keep you out of our way until I can figure out what to do with you. Do whatever you want. You can't hurt me. You're right. I can't. But Mother Nature rules over all of us. You wouldn't. I would. Try me. Okay, okay, okay. Just, just leave Mom out of this. She doesn't have to know. Well, I can't sit here and talk all night. Because of you? I'm now behind on Christmas toys. We have a lot of catching up to do now. Good. I hope you missed your stupid deadline. Levi, can you please bring the cheer squad in here, please? Thank you. <laughs> a cheer squad? What? You have your own cheerleaders now? Not quite. But I do think in this case, they are perfect company for you. Ah, here they are now. You'll have... Plenty of time to get to know them. Wait. I gotta know. How did you do it? What? This. The elves attacking me. How? Well, that's easy. My magic, you see. It comes from cookies and eggnog. <laughs> and you helped me defeat you. Now, I believe you have some new friends to meet. Guys? He's all yours. Merry Christmas! We wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year! We wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year! I'll get you for this, Santa! Tidings we bring to you right now! And there you have it. Uh, we thank you once again for listening to this very special episode during the holiday season. Again, I want to give a special thanks to uh, my friend Tim Mullins for another fantastic job editing the podcast um, and getting this out to everybody. And also all the other podcasts that came on this show to help make it possible. We just want, I'm sure this would be said from every podcast on here, but we would just want you all to know that we love you and we thank you for listening to us. And if you haven't listened to any of these other podcasts, please go subscribe to them. Leave them a review. Tell them the Tragedy of Cinema sent you. Um, listen to them. Subscribe to them. Uh, just help get their podcast to grow because the best way to grow your podcast is through word of mouth. So from all of us, we would just like to say God bless you, Merry Christmas, and have a Happy New Year. Ho, 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 ho. Merry Christmas. I'll be back. Mark my words.